Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm Dave Gebro. And I'm the much less excited Joe Kennedy, because everybody on earth is less excited than that. Now I'm on his level. <laughs> You're kind of channeling our singer today. He's a screamer. He's no longer screaming. Bro. Well, he was. He was. Yeah. Well, as spoiler alert, well, you already <laughs> clicked on the thing that said Nirvana. Yeah, we kind of so. do this thing every week where we're being coy about yeah, who yeah. the guest is, <laughs> except it already says it in the thing that you got to click to play the show. Somehow we're operating on a set of rules that have nothing to do with Let's our keep reality. that conceit going. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's um, this guy. His initials are KC. Yeah, we had screams like we that. had planned on doing Nirvana. It was a big card flip. I mean, this early in the game, we could be doing it. We could be doing Menudo for God's sake. But yeah, you know, next week. Yeah, exactly. Um, with regard to these guys, it was just something we felt like this will be a, a good one for us to do now. Um, and then what happened was Taylor Hawkins passed away. Right. Yeah. It's very it's such a bummer, man. Yeah. Uh, did not see that one coming at all, i got to say. No. Um, you know, I spent some time with the Foo Fighters camp. Um, it was almost 20 years ago now. It was in 2003. I did like eight weeks of touring opening for them. And um, they were so welcoming and friendly. And like, it was like the best opening gig I feel like we ever did. In terms mm. of getting like really treated well by the headliners, they really made us feel welcome. And um, Any specific recollections of Taylor himself? Or? Yeah, he's really sweet. Those guys yeah. are all very like inviting. and I He think has a nice guy face. I mean, you can't fake those kinds of features you can't yeah I think you know with Grohl kind of being the leader of the organization his philosophy is like look I've been doing this since I was 16 I live out here on the road I'm gonna make it nice I'm gonna make it enjoyable for everybody he takes so, care of his people yeah so people tend to stay around for a long time and it's yeah. a really positive um, by all accounts yeah. Taylor Hawkins was his best friend yeah so so you got um, you, you got a sandy blonde-haired uh, you know, uh, 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 perennially stubbled, uh, you know, music is my life guy mm -hmm. passes away in 1994. Then it happens all over again to the guy in 2022. Not to make this about Dave Grohl, but he must be reliving some serious drama right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't really know the. You know, who knows the exact like? Um, it sounds, seems like he had a you know kind of bunch of substances in his system. Who knows like if, Ten, that's, right? if that's a normal day for him or if yeah. that's you know it, it's really hard to say. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's sad. A Look, I remember when, very shocking. Uh, know, to hear it. Yeah, the artist. Uh, you know, when Kurt Cobain passed away. You know, that was that was the the JFK shooting of our generation. People can probably tell you where they were. Uh, when they found out that he had passed away, um, you know, it's as much of a corollary, I think, as you know, our pathetic generation yeah, has. I don't, I don't remember where I was. <laughs> I was on the crapper. <laughs> I was I crapping do, out whatever I ate that afternoon. I do remember kind of thinking, like, I had like this kind of weird feeling of denial, kind of like, oh, it's not really true, like you know, even though there was the signs of it were really so obvious. Um, uh, I I was a fan, but I, I wouldn't say I was a super fan of Nirvana's. I, I kind of got more into them a little bit later. I feel like um, like years later, maybe like my thirties or something. I kind of I kind of had a rediscovering of them. And the main thing for me is that they became so incredibly iconic, especially when he died. Right. That as far as me being a fan of the band, because I had all the records when they came out. I bought them the day they came out. Um, well, that's not true. Never mind. I don't think I did. Uh, in utero, I, I, I did. But um, 
it became so incredibly iconic, I just shied away from even listening to it for a very long time. Yeah. Um, okay, back to business. First things first, you need to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. What the guy said is true. We're not just covering albums. We do an incredibly thorough deep dive of all the singles, EPs, uh, you know, relevant live albums, comp tracks, you name it. And then every release is slapped with a rating from <laughs> zero. Is <laughs> it a slapping sound? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's slapped with a rating from zero to five stars. Objectively accurate rating. That's right. And that allows us, to uh, all of us, really, together as the, one. The royal us. Yeah, to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Uh, today, we are turning the spray cans on, as you may have guessed, <laughs> Nirvana. <laughs> Teenage Wasteland turned to complete and total waste, man. So my guest tonight is a music professional who's toured and recorded with artists like Sia, Macy Gray, Kurt Vile, Eve Toomer, Pete Yorn, Hazel English, Girl Pool, Inara George, and many others. He's appeared live on SNL, Jules Holland, Fallon, Kimmel, Letterman, HBO's Reverb, you name it. He was also the composer for seasons four and five of ABC's American Housewife, and he scored my first feature film, the homeboy. He'll also be scoring my soon-to-be-completed post-pandemic toddler rom-com, The Alley Cats. Will you please welcome a really swell guy with a bottomless pit of anger I can most certainly relate to, lads and ladies of Discography City, will you please, for the love of Christ and whatever the hell else compels you, welcome my co-host, an equally passionate student of music history who goes by the gnome to plume of... Joseph Kennedy. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be a guest on the show. <laughs> well, I decided to change it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, should I, I split myself into two personalities and be host me and guest me? You can't see me now, but I'm on my knees and uh, my hands are literally in supplication gesture. Okay. Thank you. That's very nice. No problem, bro. <laughs> hey, so what do these guys mean to you? So one of the, you know, there's sort of, uh, you know, they were such an epic, iconic thing at at their time because of the place and time where they came out and and their nexus in like where, what kind of turned rock, what rock turned into at that time. So Mm. hair metal, they kind of have the reputation of they killed off hair metal, which is not, I don't think really exactly right on. I think there was sort of some shots already fired in that, um, particular hair metal was doing a good enough job killing itself yeah so november rain was more of a nail in the coffin than nirvana well i to me the bands that kind of so i was a teenage metalhead um you know i like playing in bands that was really the that only, sounds like a great movie title yeah it was kind of the only sort of band you could play in where i was from in south florida they were really they were metal bands and that was pretty much it you were not going to like go start a band that sounded like rem or something there wasn't that didn't exist <laughs> So, um, and then uh, weirdly, there was not much of a punk scene either, really. So anybody who played music was playing in metal bands. Um, and, um, so I would be out often in like the clubs seeing bands play when I was like maybe 16, 17. And, um, you know, obviously in between they'd be playing whatever the popular hits of the day were. And I remember the first ones that kind of broke through that you would hear would be like, maybe like Jane's Addiction and faith no more i think that that was kind of Overrated. like you were starting to see a sp- but you were starting to see a splinter of like metal that was definitely yeah, it got harder it got it more was, authentic well, it was sounding. definitely metal in its roots but more artsy you know they had that kind of like you know it was an alter- it was like alternative metal was sort of mm-hmm. becoming a thing 
And then um, you know the Seattle sound thing start was a, was kind of a thing a year before Nevermind came out. I remember really distinctly getting freshman year of college, getting a Rolling Stone magazine, and there was an article about like breakout bands from Seattle, and the three bands were Alice in Chains. Mother Love Bone and the Posies, kind of a weird cross section. Yeah, um, the Posies don't really seem to belong in that at all. But I, <laughs> don't I, seem. But yeah. I owned all three of those records and really liked all three of them. Um, Dear Twenty Three. Dear Twenty Three. Um, uh, Mother Alice, Love Bone's the only one. Right, the only one. And then um, Facelift, and then Mother mm-hmm. Love Bone, of course, became Pearl Jam. Basically, it's yeah. Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. So that was already happened. That was a full year before. Yeah. Nevermind came out. I feel like Alice in Chains was another band that kind of like took a, a chunk out of hair metal, even the, though they had roots as a hair metal band. The, the thing about these guys, as far as how they how how I relate to them, is that um, they were not my voice of a generation. Uh, if I had to go for, and we've said it on the show before, if you're a follower, uh, which I'm sure you are, uh, because it's hard not to get addicted to this thing once you get started, um, then you know that Beck and Pavement. Those were the you know the voices of the generation type deals at that time. Uh, Nirvana uh, were to me just a great rock and roll band, but um, this trawl, what it wound up doing was reconnecting me with the power of their music, um, especially on the two canonical records. Uh, you know they had become more ideas, or you know you know they killed off hair metal, or they did this, or they did that. Not what is the music. Uh, it was just discussions about, uh, you know, what kinds of impact the band had. So, right, right. Um, so also there's all these scattered, you know, magnificent masterpieces on other records, which adds up to, of course, an insanely great discography playlist, if that's your kind of thing, which yeah. of course it should be. Yep. Um, anyway, so this is the part of the show that I love to call the run-up. And this is going to get us straight to uh, the first releases of the band as quickly as possible. So singer-guitarist Kurt Cobain and bassist Chris Novoselic meet at Aberdeen High School in Washington. And much like uh, Nirvana has a quiet, loud um, aesthetic, they have a small guy, big guy kind of aesthetic. Right, Kurt's right. a little guy. Right. Novoselic's a giant. Yeah, so I guess Kurt is quiet He's in this quiet. situation. <laughs> Uh, so Cob- Cobain, all right, check this out. Cobain wants to form a band with Novoselic, but Novoselic doesn't respond for a long time. Imagine that fucking dynamic for a second. I read that same. Just to, just I read that same thing. It's funny. That through that is so weird. Okay, now let's continue. Cobain gives Novoselic a demo tape of his project Fecal Matter. Three years later, he finally tells him, I listened to Fecal Matter, and maybe we should form a group. This is three years later. It's been a really busy three years. Yeah. It's been a really hectic three years. He's so loud, he doesn't really, in the the dynamic (laughs) thing. So their first band, The Sellouts, is a uh, CCR-type, CCR tribute band. Right. Uh, The project features Novoselic on guitar and vocals, Cobain on drums, and a guy named Steve Newman, whoever the fuck that is, on bass. After a short time the project falls through another project this time featuring all original songs was also attempted in late 86 bob mcfadden whoever the fuck that is is enlisted to play drums but after a month that falls through in early 87 cobain and novacelic recruit drummer aaron burkhardt right before we move on to that next phase i gotta say if somebody gave me a tape and it was called fecal matter yeah. like this is my music i yeah. would check it out yeah i would listen i'd be that would yeah. pique my interest yeah 
All right. Anyway, if somebody handed me a turd, I would put that in my ear too. <laughs> um, so I'm try these, that. These guys. So Aaron Burkhardt comes on board and they practice uh, material from fecal matter, but he starts writing new material very soon after they form. Phase one, run of the mill town. 1987 to 1990. I want to say, uh, before we launch into this, what we've decided to do to present uh, the most airtight show imaginable is interspersed in between the records. We have deconstructed uh, the With the Lights Out box set. And we have, uh, or I have interspersed all the songs in painstaking order exactly where they belong. Um, So it gives the perfect overview. You can follow along in the playlist or do whatever you like. But yeah, so it kind of goes by recording date. Right. Um, right so, so everything can, is by recording date. Because so, a, lot of these, a lot of these were released several times and out of order. So the, the box set was released in November 2004. It has three CDs and a DVD of rare or unreleased material, uh, including B-sides, demos, rehearsals, and live recordings. The um, Our story begins on March 7th, 1987, at a show in Raymond, Washington. This is Nirvana's very first show. Uh, there is a, a sampling of that. There's a version of Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker, which is so apropos to me, Joe, because grunge to me is nothing revolutionary. This is not like punk. This is yeah. classic rock. It seems like they're playing. That's all it, it is. They're, it's classic seems rock. Like they're playing it a little ironically uh, because so? the rest of their material is very Melvins inspired. Right. It's very sludge metal. But this is pretty awesome. And this is very fully formed for what it yeah, is. Yeah, you can kind of hear the talent. These guys in there. can play. Um, yeah, this you, is not a rudimentary. Yeah, thing. you can kind of hear the talent right off the bat. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, so that's on the box set. That's. March 7th, 87, that's where our story starts. May 6, 1987, uh, Nirvana's first radio session uh, on Chaos in Olympia, Washington. They do Anorexist, um, Exorcist, Anorexist. How do you? Anorexist. Anorexist. <laughs> Anorexist. Uh, White Lace and Strange and Help Me, I'm Hungry. Uh, nothing really, you know, that really is leaping out at me there. There's some really good. Headbanging sludge punk, especially anorexorcist. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that struck me about it is it's kind of weird and druggy, and it's definitely not like there. You know, we talked a little bit about some of the kind of the alternative metal bands kind of having a metal pedigree, and Nirvana really is more in this sort of like Melvin's kind of art punk metal. You know, um, you know they do do the cover of Heartbreaker, but their roots are much more in. They're, they're trying to make a racket, make noise, and make stuff that sounds yeah. ugly and kind of weird. They're weirdos. Yeah. They have their okay. So there's a really major leaning towards the notion of authenticity around this time. So now we're in 2022, and no one gives a give a gives a rat's ass about anything along those lines. At that time, just as in the 70s, and you know. There was, or, or 60s especially, right, Joe? I mean, yeah. if you weren't walking it like you talked it, mm-hmm. nobody cared about you. Yeah, I, Kurt in particular, um, very obsessed with the idea of authenticity and yeah. um, it's kind of a student. Not of, selling out. Yeah. Corporate was, magazine still sucked. Right. He kind of kind of always was a student of rock history mm-hmm. um, and kind of seemed to understand kind of the big archetypes, uh, you know, um, and I think that informs a lot of his creativity and decision making and mm-hmm. you know um he sees himself as part of that tapestry i think 
Um, and um, but yeah, the, the, these early recordings, you can definitely tell they're going for a sludgy art metal. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to sound like Dokken or something. The you know? last thing that they are uh, have bequeathed us with uh, is uh, why does that sound like a curse word? Uh, mm-hmm. Is a 1987 band rehearsal from Aberdeen, Mrs. Butterworth, mm-hmm. which to me has glimmers of later songwriting genius. Sounds a little Cobainish. You yeah. can hear some of the yeah. Uh, and there's also a nice uh, uh, piss take on the doors at the end uh, during a midsection breakdown. Right, right. That's it for 87. That's, uh, you know, not much to really go off of. You wouldn't uh, be bitch slapped for thinking that they were not going to go anywhere at that point. But uh, so during its initial months, uh, the band went through all kinds of names. Uh, a few of them were Skid Row. It's good they not, didn't go with that one. Pen Cap Chew, which later became a song of theirs. And Ted Ed Fred, which I might add should have been the way they went. But then um, we're right, said Fred, though. Right, but Ted Ed Fred <laughs> is better. It's, yeah, just, it created it's a problems. refinement and an idea. Uh, <laughs> so they settled on Nirvana because, according to Cobain, I wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of a mean, raunchy punk name like the Angry Samoans. Mm. So uh, Novoselic moves to Tacoma. Cobain moves to Olympia. Um, they uh, temporarily lose contact with Burkhardt, uh, the drummer, and instead wind up practicing with Dale Crover of the Melvins. Um, and their first demos are recorded in January 88. Now, let me just say, this is an incredibly fortuitous uh, event in their development. Dale Crover is a fucking great drummer. He's a really great drummer. But the material is not really reflecting the The material is not really there, but it's, it's, it's very Melvin's influence still. Um, particularly, I think this is around the time when um, the Melvins had gluey porch treatments, which is kind of a seminal sludge record. And I know that those guys were big fans of that record. This sounds mm-hmm. like kind of like that. It's... You know, um, if you hear that record and then hear some of these recordings, I think they may be done roughly around the same time. And um, that period of the Melvins, though, it's it, and and then when you have the actual, uh, you know, the Melvins are also a three piece. And then when you have a huge part of the sound is Dale Crover. So when he's sitting in and playing drums, he has this style where he hits very hard. He's, he has a massive sound. So it's it sounds very melvinsy like it, it's you know it's it's they're really super authentic melvins sounding band does, they have one he, of the guys does he have a drummer as a drummer have any kind of imprint on on Dave Grohl's eventual sound i'm asking you because i'm actually i think probably yes unfamiliar i would say yes i would okay. i think i think grohl in particular is a big fan of the gluey okay. porch treatments record i've heard him mention that um He's a fan of that. So I would say yes. I think I'll uh, get around to the Melvins eventually. It's everyone's gotta have yeah, holes I, in their I really I dig the Melvins a lot. Um, but he's a great drummer either way. Uh, Dale, All right, yeah, so, so their first demos ever. There's uh, a bunch produced, of them with Dale Crover. Pr- uh, produced by Jack and Dino. Um only two songs, If You Must and Pen Cap Chew. Uh not much remarkable about uh, remarkable about this. It's their first uh, sludgy run of the mill headbanger. Um both of them are kind of a yawn for me. What do you think? Um yeah, there's the songwriting still in a pretty early kind of stage, and they're they're kind of more um, they're they're doing a style of a thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. you don't really hear as much of Kurt's like melodic voice in these yet. So that's the thing that really makes them special is when he right. starts to write those very melodic kind of songs. Um, that night, is, that night they they did a gig, and that's on the box too. And so mm-hmm. there's a there's a show they did in Tacoma. They did Downer, Floyd the Barber, Ranchola. I'm sure there was. Uh, uh, oh, and that's with Moby Dick. So they right. really like Led Zeppelin yeah. too. Uh, you know, again, same kind of thing. They're banging it out. Nothing uh, overly remarkable. Nothing bad either. 
there's also a smattering of 87 to 88 solo four-track home recordings uh, from Aberdeen. Uh, and there is one worthy of mentioning. There's a few here. Uh, Beans don't want it all. Obviously, you got Polly and, a, and About a Girl. Those are great demos. But Clean Up Before She Comes. Do you have any personal feelings about that song? Well, that one seems kind of like a more professional kind of uh, effort on his part. It seems like maybe he got like a better four track. It sounds like the sound quality is actually pretty good on that. I think it's one of the first great songs he wrote. Yeah, so he has a few of them now. So he's got that one and Polly, like you mentioned, and about a girl. So they're kind of from right. the same. Now around, the material is starting to match. Yeah, all around yeah. the same period. A Clean Up Before She Comes has kind of been lost uh, to the ages. That one really, they never really revisited. But the That other, one's going on the playlist. Yeah. To me, that's where it kind of all starts if you don't count Polly and about a girl because yeah that's those a, studio versions are going on the playlist that's a pretty uh, key, those are all key uh, tracks I think and you can kind of see the arc starting to kind of take lift, yeah. lift off um, yep. some of those recordings from that period are kind of like it sounds like you just got the four track and you like figured out you can do pitch control and stuff beans. Like there's some fucking around beans which is kind of fun to, you know. yeah it's interesting it's a little scronky a little bit <laughs> yeah. uh, like beck's early record yeah, they put out every scrap of everything that has ever been committed to oh, any is that, sort of tape. is that true i think i think pretty much everything he ever recorded has been okay. put out at this point there's not a lot of scronk there's a little bit yeah. not a lot um, uh so in early 88 crover moves to san francisco but recommends dave foster as his replacement on drums so foster's tenure with nirvana that you that's only a few months long because he, uh, he had to he had to quit. go to jail <laughs> he had, he, yeah. no he had to go uh, write infinite jest <laughs> right <laughs> god that would be so cool if that's what it was <laughs> uh so he's replaced by uh for by burkhardt who again departs after he tells cobain he was too hungover to practice one day T- talk about kicking yourself over just a, a an extemporaneous decision mm-hmm. uh so a mutual friend introduces them to a guy named Chad Channing. So Channing continues to jam with Cobain and Novoselic, but by Channing's uh, own admission, they never actually said, okay, you're in. Channing plays his first show with Nirvana in May 88. Right, and there's kind of a distinct sort of shambolic sort of sound to the Chad Channing era. He's a little bit loosey-goosey. Um, he's, I, don't, I think the words I'm looking for is that he's not very good. <laughs> There's a lack of dynamism. You, There's a lack of you, being good at drums. Huh? You played me some recordings that later became synonymous with Dave Grohl's style. Right. And it is, um, it, it's like uh, opening the, the, the oven too early on a cake, basically. Yeah, it's, you know, the, he's kind of situated in between the two, you know, Crover and Dave Grohl, both who are like really super amazing drummers. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of a weird, uh, they, they sort of like become less professional sounding or something. They're not there yet. Yeah. They're not there yet. So the, the There's a uh, certain kind of charm to them, some of these recordings that are on um, the next thing, though, with Chad Channing, because the, the looseness of it is kind of a big part of the sound. They sound kind of garagey. So a, mu- a month into kind of being a part of the band, I think it's about a month, um, in June 88, there's a studio session <clears throat> Jack and Dino again at the helm. Blandest. Doesn't really make any kind of impression on me. Uh, that seems like a first attempt to kind of get that bleach sound down on tape. So it sounds kind of like they that was like their first session with Indino, and then, yeah. then, then they did a bunch more that eventually became Bleach. So their first single, a cover of uh, Shocking Blue's Love Buzz, in November 88 on Sub Pop comes down the pike. So let's talk about Sub Pop for a second, Joe. 
this becomes an instrumental label in not just uh, you know Nirvana's history, but of course grunge in general. And a huge brand name in the early days of grunge. Um, they've become sort of a different thing over the year. They've over the years they've, they're sort of like the kind of normie indie label now. But they were synonymous with the. Um, with the grunge movement at the time, uh, this Bleach is still the top-selling record to ever come out on Sub Pop, um, which is, I, I guess we're almost up to that now. Um, but yeah, uh, they were basically it was small at the time. This is the, this is kind of their early early days. This was the, kind of their first big. Back success. then, it was all grunge, and then it right. became you know they diversified into releasing albums like The Shins or Inverted World, all, all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, but back then it was they were the leaders of this movement. Uh, in June 88, uh, Nirvana's first release was recorded. That's the Love Buzz single. Um, described by Sub Pop as being heavy pop sludge. It was the first single in the Sub Pop Singles Club. It was limited to a 1,000 numbered copies. Um, it was a deemed single of the week in Sounds by John Robb, uh, which was the first mention of the band in the UK press. Mm -hmm. A slightly um, different mix of the song you would find on Bleach, uh, but, um, you know, th this is, I don't know, what are, what are your feelings on this? Well, you know, Love Buzz, is, like you said, it's on Bleach, so I know it from that. Um, this mix sounds a little bit different, not it that feels different. Almost, first of all, the bass-centricness of it yeah. is, is an odd fit for the band. It's just strange. It doesn't, um, it doesn't sound like their other stuff, really. It doesn't. Um, and it, it has almost a, it, it, it's almost Middle Eastern sounding. Yeah, it kind of has that sort of scale that sort of has that kind of... That, yeah, you're right, it does have that like kind of Like a sound. snake charmer deal. Yeah, I never really loved the, uh, the this song. I always found the song to be kind of grating. Yeah, I don't um, like it. I don't like it. And B Big Cheese, I like better. Yeah, that one... The flip. That one's okay. It's a, it's a pretty obscure Nirvana song, Big I, Cheese. I give, it, I give it two and a half stars, mostly for Big Cheese. Yeah, I gave this single two stars. Yeah, I, um, I should have gotten less. That's all right. You're more, you got your finger on the zeitgeist of the opinion here. Uh, so from December 24th to the 31st, 1988, uh, they recorded Bleach, their first album. It was mixed January 14th and 24th, 1989, so really completed in 89. Um, so according to Kurt, uh, the music on the record basically conformed with, uh, you know, the grunge uh, heading that uh, Sub Pop were so heavily in favor of. He said there was this pressure from Sub Pop and the grunge scene to play rock music. Uh, and he noted that he stripped it down and made it sound like Aerosmith. He felt like he had to fulfill these expectations. At least that's what he says, you know, his revisionist take on it. Yeah, in retrospect, it's kind of weird to think of grunge as a label. And then, because it sort of beca it became a catch all thing for, right. for everything. It became like, you know, Alice in Chains is grunge and like Creed is grunge and, you know, everything was grunge. But it was, it was a pretty specific subset of a of a scene you know i mean who are the other like mud honey you kind of think right. of is it tad mud honey know? feel like a more uh you know like a, a more apt comparison or more uh you know more of a reflection of the ideals of grunge if you could say that it actually had ideals i guess so yeah but the point is it was kind of a, a much more micro genre kind of thing than you know it became like you know grunge was was to this 90s what like i think you know was, psychedelia was to this it became this like huge umbrella that, yeah, that yeah. encompassed everything i mean but. i think i think with these guys honestly you know for the most part it was an accident so in 2001 yeah uh, chris novoselic did an interview with uh, rolling stone and he says that they had a tape in their tour of 
that they would listen to all the time at that at that point in history. Um, it had an album by the Smithereens on one side and an album by Celtic Frost on the other. And he just thought that the combination just seeped into their sensibility. Yeah, and I, you know, they they are like a lot of great bands. They're you know uh, great synthesists. You know, they take all the cool shit and then they they like good things and then they turn those influences with their own talent into something right. that's unique in their own. So, yeah, I mean, they you know obviously they were into the Pixies. That's a big influence on them. And I, you, there, there's definitely a distinct sense that John Lennon's sense of melody is very influential to Kurt. So, um, also with regard to lyrics, um, you know, his lyrical sensibility, at least this time out, it's regard, it's um, you know, pretty negative, pretty downbeat. Yeah. Um, he says that most of the lyrics were written the night before. Uh, he was apparently pissed off also the night before, <laughs> right. um, and he he wasn't a big fan of the lyrics. Yeah, also, so this was kind of done like what like uh, Meet the Beatles kind of style, yeah, right? This this, yeah. this was done in a very quick session. I think the full budget for the record was six hundred dollars. No, the full budget was six hundred six dollars seventeen cents. Right, every penny counts when it's like that. Yeah, it sold. It has to this to this day sold nearly two million copies. That's awesome. Yeah, <clears throat> really, really awesome. Um, so as a record itself, um, it, it's 11 songs. Dale Crover's playing drums on Floyd the Barber, Paper Cuts, and Downer. Mm-hmm. He sings backing vocals, vocals on Downer. Otherwise, it's Chad Channing on drums. Right. You can really tell the difference with the Dale Crover uh, tracks. You know, it's funny playing drums. So much of the sound is like how you physically hit the drums. It's not really necessarily when you hit them. Mm-hmm. It's like your, your touch on the drums. Dale Crover is one of the heaviest, hardest hitting drummers I can like ever imagine um, and the songs where he's playing have a distinct kind of stomp to them um, so yeah that's kind of notable about this record that he's on kind of a third of it this record is uh, is only very very slightly better than I remember it it's nascent as nascent can be throughout most of it and they sound like larvae version of the nirvana they'd become about a girl school Negative Creep and Scoff will be on the playlist. Don't worry. There are a few others that I like on Bleach. To me, the rest of it's inessential. I kind of like the first... It starts off strong to me. I like the... F- I, there's like the f- I like maybe like five of the first seven songs. I don't songs. even think it starts off good. I think uh, the third track is the first good one. I kind of like... I like Blue, the opener, and um, you know, Floyd the Barber is a very Melvin. You want to talk about thing. the Doom Pop experiment? The, the drop groove? Which one was what's so that? blue is? Oh yeah, that's right. They they it was a they down, always down tune, but it this was, time right. it was a double down tune. Yeah, so they usually would down tune to D, and yeah. then they, so they would drop not drop D, they would tune the entire guitar down to D, and then um, they went into rehearsal one day and they forgot that they'd already tuned down to D, so they tuned down again to C. <laughs> so, that's why it sounds so monstrous. Yeah, so it does, didn't doesn't really work on. Anything. I don't like it honestly. I don't like the next song, Floyd the Barber, about a girl. That was, um, uh, so he reportedly, uh, Kurt spent an entire afternoon repeatedly listening to Meet the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And the result of that was about a girl. This is the first sign of irrefutable greatness. Yeah. This is a great song. This is obviously not like anything else on this record, but it is very much what they leaned into the next time around. He sort of leaned leaned into this kind of song. Um, and much, you know, away from the sort of sludgy metal. This is the, this is the best song on the album. Um, that's the best song on the record. But then you have the second best song on the record coming directly afterwards. No 
Reese's. Yeah. So school has always been one of my favorite. That's a jams great of song. It's so simple. It's, it's so Alice Coopery. Yeah, it's the, the it's just basically that one riff. It's a, there's only only like two lyrics in the whole in the whole song. Yeah, it's a, it's really good. Um, they always played a great live. It was kind of a staple of their live sets. Um, I I love that kind of sound for them. Um, it has kind of a sense of humor to it. Um, the the riff is just such a great dumb like lumbering kind of kind of riff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great. Um, you know, negative creep is another one. Um, that that's of, got the sweet young thing ain't sweet no more. Yeah, right? daddy's a little girl ain't a girl yeah. no more. They kind of got into some trouble for that. He kind of admitted that he. It he wouldn't was, even be. I think it was an, un, an I think intentional it was, yeah, thing. But yeah. the funny part of it is, um, he belabors that that section is so yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That it's just it, it, normally you wouldn't have raised any kind well, that, of cocktail. That's just a great stony sludge, like 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 churning pile of sludge. That song, "Sweet Young Thing" ain't sweet no ain't sweet no more is easily the better song. But yeah, it's, but it's negative still, creep's got its own charm to it. Yeah, it's, it's it's a song. They were they were good at that and then kind scoff, of thing. Scoff is a great uh, deep cut from these guys. Yeah, that's uh, when it starts to tail off for me a little bit. The last four, um, you know. I, I give this record two and a half stars. I'm not wild about it. I give it three. We're pretty much in the bandwidth there. Yeah, it's not yeah. amazing, but it's, um, it's I, I kind of think it's kind of sort of half good. Maybe a little less than half. I um, think it's a little less than half good. You may be, uh, you may not be aware, uh, but it's true. Nirvana had a song called Mr. Mustache. I did know that. That is a, a real. That is a real thing. That yeah, I did not know this before. This I did draw. not. Know, I did not remember <clears throat> Mr. Mustache yeah. from the Halcyon days of the nineties. To say, Mr. <laughs> Mustache. All right. So moving on. Spring 1989 studio session at Evergreen State College Audio Studio in Olympia. Uh, the song "Dive." That's on with the lights out. Then recorded. That's uh, awesome. Recorded June and December of 1988 from side one, and Ju and August 1989 side two, the Blue EP B L E W. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so, uh, with this, you got four songs on here: Blue, Love Buzz, Binasan, and Stain. Let's just talk about Binasan and Stain. Because so, we've already covered the other two. Yeah, Bit of Sun is a different version than the one that is on um, Incesticide. They, were, they tracked it again later. I like the, the Incesticide version better. Um, but uh, Stain is cool, though. That's a, that's a, th these are both cool songs. They're both cool songs. They, Bit uh, of Sun especially. Bit of Sun is a great song. Yeah, so this is a pretty interesting period, this sort of middle period between Bleach and uh, Nevermind. There's, there's really only a handful of things that they did, but they're all kind of cool. They're all kind of like building. They all point the way, and right. some, some of them do more than just point the way. Bin of Sun is one of those. Yeah, Bin of Sun is really cool. They're both excellent songs. Um, yeah. Uh, Stain, I think Stain is solid. I think Bin of Sun is, it goes beyond that. Yeah, Bin of Sun is a real like, kind of jam of this period. Um, and but, but, you know, th these are... Uh, kind of two of the stronger tracks from uh, what later became Incesticide. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I gave it three stars. I gave three and a half to the Okay, blue, Yeah, we're a half star, half star away on everything. <laughs> All right, August 20th and 28th, there's a 1989 studio session uh, in Seattle with Jack and Dino on the board again. Um, so this is uh, a studio session for The Jury, which is a Lead Belly cover band featuring members of Nirvana and the Screaming Trees. They hung them on a cross, Grey Goose, and Ain't It a Shame. You have anything specific to say about that, uh, that um, material? These are interesting to hear. This doesn't seem like Nirvana canon. It's interesting to hear Kurt sing in this sort of blues voice. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, uh, it, it, they're all kind of uh, you know they're they're blues standards kind of these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not bad at it. Yeah, he, he's a, he's a really good singer. We haven't really mentioned that yet. He's you know he's a pretty impressive singer. He's got a great voice. He's capable of a lot of different. Uh, he has a wide range. Even when he sings pained, yeah. You know, even when he consciously sings pained, yeah. It's fine. He can convey. Not, a, it yeah, he can convey overly. a lot of emotion as a singer. I think that's maybe what why people love him and the band as much as they do. It's the kind of authenticity that comes out of him. He doesn't seem like a polished, like rehearsed singer. It seems kind of very raw and natural. He cut his vocals quickly. Yeah, Most of right. the stuff that you hear is first take stuff, apparently. Yeah, and he does a lot of different and things. And in utero, there's not even double tracking. Yeah, there's some double tracking. And sometimes yeah. on choruses, oh, really? they pop in double tracking okay. on choruses sometimes. But um, yeah, he's he's a pretty astonishing Thank singer. Thank you, fact checker. <laughs> Um, and so he's but this is a kind of different style of singing for him um, singing in this kind of blues style and I think he's kind of trying to he just has kind of a different take on this than he does when he's singing for Nirvana right maybe the only thing I think he ever did that was not under the Nirvana banner is that true I don't think he ever did anything else that was not Nirvana that's interesting Um, talk about loyal yeah so the next month September 89 there's a studio session where he does token eastern song even in his youth and Polly then, um, then we're into 1990. Things start to get a little headier now. Uh, April 2nd to the 6th, there's a studio session uh, with Butch Vig doing Pay to Play, which is an early version of Stay Away. That was uh, previously released on DGC Rarities, um, Volume 1 and 94. And also, Here She Comes Now, the VU song, previously released on a split single with the Melvins in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a pretty neat cover. Yeah. Now we're in phase two. Unlocking the magic formula. 1990 to 1992. Now we're in some pretty heady waters, wouldn't you say, Joe? Recorded July 11th. That was rhetorical. That's why I kept talking. (laughs) July 11th, 1990, the Sliver single. Take it away, Joe. Yeah, so this is Sliver and Dive are the two singles that right. are listed here. Um, both great songs. A, a great single. I would say masterpieces, actually. Yeah, I love both of these songs. Um, this is this where is, they really dialed in the cheap jerk energy. Yeah, you know? they're starting to show kind of a different sense of like layers and textures on things. Like, you know, Dive has a great kind of sonic thing going on with it. And, um, you know, Sliver is this kind of like a very bouncy, peppy kind of song, but it has this kind of vaguely disturbing lyric about him being a little kid. And it's a little kind of vaguely creepy, um, but still a really fun song. Um, and there, there's just kind of a, they seem to have just kicked it all up a notch here. They're just kind of operating at a higher level in general. Um, Do you know what the reason for Sliver was? Um, Sliver was one I thought that he just wrote like last second or something. I'm just saying conceptually. Oh, he wanted to do something kind of goofy. He wanted to do something kind of. Well, yeah, uh, he did. He he actually said, I, I decided I wanted to write the most ridiculous pop song I'd ever written. But uh, the reason why, though, is uh, in order to prepare people for the next album. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Because he, real, right. he thought like, oh, shit, how are people going to make this jump and right. be able to accept the sort of Bay City Rollersy vibe to their you know, to right. the grunge. Right. Um, so, you know, this is songwriting, production, singing, playing. It's all there. It's all in alignment. Yeah, this I just give seems the, to I have, give it five stars. Yeah, this is a five-star single. And it's it awesome. Does, it just seems just seem to have an added layer of kind of smarts and, and skill to it. They've all of a sudden, it's just like... Um, you know, uh, there's been a few bands that we've uh, that have sort of been along these lines, which is that they're like a decent band, 
and they sit there and like strain like you're trying to take a crap yeah and it allows them to become a great band like you can will yourself yeah. to become a great band sometimes you just get better 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 you know you keep writing songs you're gonna get better right right if you have any talent right but with some of these acts it's like you just like on a dime they be they went from decent like following the rules of a certain scene too great. Yeah, I think there's also a thing of like, you know, following the thing that you're good at. Like, like right. oh, I can write this kind of song with this kind of melody, like, like, like about a girl, and I should do more of that. Like, that seems like that's maybe a path to like, that's, you know, I think that's and also. also, you ingest influences to the point where like you explode and the real you comes out. Yeah, I think also those are the kinds of songs that he found more enjoyable to make. Like, right. you know, I think it's kind of like doing this sort of sludgy riff thing. There's kind of a ceiling as to where you can really go with it. Yeah, you can yeah. really kind of make a a play for greatness if you can write great songs. Yeah, that <laughs> to me was a dead and He always end. had that ambition of being great. That and, was the sausage grinder yeah, for them. Yeah. They, it comes out different the other side. For them, it came out better than most of their influences. Yeah. So in September, uh, this is Sliver's been out for a couple months. They do. Uh, Kurt does a solo radio station on the Boy Meets Girls show on Chaos eighty nine point three in Olympia. Opinion, Lithium, and Benison host Calvin Johnson. Uh, that next month, October twenty first, they did a radio station in London with John Peel, D seven. Uh, then nineteen ninety Boombox recorded home demos in Olympia. Sliver and Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which brings us to the Hormoning EP, recorded October 21st, 1990, and January 1st, 91, released a year later, January 27th, 92. Yeah, so this was uh, a tour-only EP. Um, released was, in Australia and Japan only. Yeah, you could buy it at their shows on, on, the, on the tour. Four of the songs on this are covers, which hadn't been released previously. The remaining two are Nirvana originals. For me, for my money, the two originals, uh, those are the two songs to really pull off onto the playlist, Aneurysm and Even in His Youth. Yeah, so Aneurysm is probably one of their best songs they have done yet to this point. It's uh, one of their more ambitious. It kind of has a bunch of different parts to it. has the great hook, the uh, beat me out of me hook. Um, great song, super essential. I also really like the cover of uh, Molly's Lips. That's the one that yeah, kind of, yeah. that is the, my favorite of the covers. It really sounds like it really suits them. If you hear the original uh, Molly's Lips uh, by the Vaselines, it's a super like twee, like, like, uh, you know, beat happening kind of song. Um, but, and, and their version of it's really, really kind of reinvents it. It's a cool cover of it. Um, but I do recommend checking out the uh, original too by the Vaselines. I give this uh, three stars. I give it the same. Awesome. It's an awesome little confection of tossed off classic material and covers. It's well worth the while and ultimately better than Bleach. Now, again, these are, these, this was picked over for Incesticide, which uh, would come out a few years later. Some of the best right. stuff in this is when ended up on that. Uh, so Incesticide is sort of an era capper. It yeah, also so, acted as product that the that sub pop could then sling to Geffen, which yeah, they you know made a pretty penny on. I think it ends pretty much here. I think that's those were the last that's things it. that, that, that's that it. made it onto the next thing on the list here. Um, Incesticide takes a whole bunch of cast offs that were recorded from eighty eight to ninety one and released it in December of ninety two. So Nirvana are being, uh, you know, uh, are at this point like getting bigger and bigger as a band and um you you have sliver you have b-sides demos outtakes cover versions radio broadcast recordings 
It's not an official follow-up to Nevermind. It did really it did reach number thirty-nine on Billboard though. So moving on, uh, January first, nineteen ninety-one. So we're done with nineteen ninety now. Right. In ninety-one, uh, there's this, uh, and this is by a, a run-up to Nevermind. Right. So there's a January first, ninety-one, a studio session at Music Source Studios in Seattle where they do aneurysm. May to June 91, there's a bunch of Sound City stuff that's on with the lights out, um, including Old Age and Verse, Chorus, Verse, which are the two cast-offs. Now, before this, though, they had... they Now we're kind of getting into where they're making Nevermind um, at Sound City, but this, the project started as another record for Sub Pop. It was supposed to be the follow-up to Bleach on Sub Pop, and they recorded... What was that supposed to be? That was the record that was going to be called Sheep. So they recorded a bunch of tracks with Chad Channing um, and Butch Vig producing. From um, April 2nd to 6th, 1990. Yeah, so that was done in Madison with, with, uh, with Butch Vig. And um, a lot of what ended up being on Nevermind were recorded in those sessions with Chad Channing. We kind of alluded to this before. The, some of these songs are really, when you compare the Chad Channing versions to the Dave Grohl versions, it's really like the, the relief is very stark. They were mm-hmm. they go they become a completely different. Yeah, you played me some stuff and it's... Yeah, there's a version of um, Breed called Emodium mm-hmm. in particular that it's just missing that like insane tight like A plus drumming that, that Grohl brings to the thing. Anyway, they um, they decided at some point, they, they shelved those recordings Um and decided to kind of use the demo, use those recordings as a demo to try to get a deal with a major label, which they did. They ended up signing with DGC, uh, David Geffen Company. Um, Sub Pop was having kind of financial problems at the time. They were kind of not really into the Sub Pop thing anymore. And they kind of correctly sussed out that the environment was right for them to get a major label deal. All these Seattle bands were getting signed. And that's what happened. So then they got their budget to go make, you know, they, I think so, they got but think, think about this mm-hmm. in a cosmic way. Think about how the stars really had to align. Imagine you're some super fucking talented songwriter guy who has lots of really bad tummy aches <laughs> that can only be adequately dealt with with a nice whopping dose of heroin. So you're this guy and you have all of a sudden you become a great songwriter. You go from like being a follower of the scene sort of thing, I think it's pretty fair to say, Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden really coming to the table with an A-plus game. What is the likelihood that, you know, you have the whole band together except the drummer, that you're going to stumble across like the absolute perfect drummer you could possibly, I mean, he couldn't have done better. He's got all these incredible songs. Chad Channing's gone. Uh, He leaves after the tour, so... Uh, the recording is put on hold, but during a show by uh, a band called Scream, Cobain and Novoselic are pretty impressed by a guy named Dave Grohl. So when Scream unexpectedly disband, uh, Grohl contacts Novoselic, tr- goes to Seattle, and is invited to join. And right. with, in retrospect, with Grohl, Novoselic says everything fell into place. Yeah, now we know the modern day Dave Grohl as a kind of like classic rocker kind of guy um, this, with his work from the Foo Fighters, but really he came from the same kind of background as them. He came from like punk, the punk scene. It's not a surprise that they knew him and they were in the same circle. You know, they were kind of on the right. same, they were kind of doing the same circuit, the kind of punk indie rock thing. Um, you know, was a natural fit for them. Um, you really can't overstate the uh, the uh, what it meant to them musically to add him. Um, they, right. 
instantly became this very polished, powerful, sort of very different kind of thing, not sludgy and kind of kind of sloppy like they were with Chad Channing. And they had a little bit more money. They had they had more than six hundred six dollars uh, seventeen. Yeah, they got a pro- I think they budget, had sixty five thousand yeah, dollars. They got a proper budget. Um, they went to Sound City, as, as is very well documented at this point, and this is May to May and June of nineteen ninety one. So at the at the time of writing the record. Cobain is listening to all kinds of bands, Melvins, R.E.M., Smithereens, Pixies. Uh, he was getting more melodic. So, um, you know, Sliver was a big development. Um, a lot of, you know, let's talk from a musical point of view, right? So he's starting to do a lot of stuff with with primary power chords, right? Yeah, he's sort of got this style of like chord change and melody that I, I it doesn't really sound specifically like any John Lennon sort of right, st- right. move, but it's sort of in that sort of incisive kind of style of songwriting that Lennon has. His his aim for the material for this record was to sound like he says the knack and the Bay City Roller is getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. Yeah, they sort of pull that off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, I mean, it's he's really does have a voice as a songwriter. And when you hear, there, there's been a million imitators who just don't have that kind of melodic integrity at the core of what they're doing. This, you know, these these songs on Nevermind are, um, you know, have a lot of melodic integrity to them the same way that a quality like John Lennon song would have I'm not saying that he's as good as a songwriter but there's he a gets similar com- he gets compared often there's a similar spirit to it where it's just like the, the it's just he just finds that little nugget of melody that it's really, also that always, really stays with always you. kicking against the pricks Kind yeah, of thing, right, you know? right. It's always punching um, up. Always punching up. What's the deal with that watery sound effect on "Come as You Are"? Um, that's like just a chorus. That's just kind of a wide chorus. I, I, it's probably like a Boss CE one or something. Is he communicating know? with dolphins there? <laughs> I think it's What's just a chorus. I think it's just a chorus pedal. You know, ne- Nevermind's recorded in pretty straightforward fashion. Um, you know, it's, it was done at Sound City, Butch Vig. Not a lot of there's a there's a, a lot of people I've heard say over the years that that Pro Tools was used on Nevermind. Mm-hmm. That actually turns out to not be correct um the studio did have a version an early version of pro tools which was called sound tools at that time but it was very was com- it used for it this? was not used on nevermind okay. it was very cumbersome to work with like you would make like an edit and then you'd have to wait like 45 minutes for the computer to render the audio that you made in your edit um, they ended up not using it said that there is something very machine-like sounding about Nevermind, and it does sound in a way like it's kind of on the grid, but that's just because Grohl is such a good drummer. He's, he's, mm-hmm. His drumming is so... I don't know, maybe he played to a click on some things, but it's its really like... Uh, it sounds like it's perfected in Pro Tools, but it's really just how he plays. He's a very precise, you know, um, immaculate kind of drummer. He's really pretty amazing. So it's, it's released in 91, but in, uh, in January 92, it gets the number one on Billboard. And at this time, it was selling about 300,000 copies a week. Um, Now, in my life at that time, and I don't think you and I were, you were really in my life at that time. I think you were in Syracuse. Yeah, I left, yeah. So- uh, I left your life. It was, you left my life. Um, (laughs) So for me, I had the album, and I liked the album, and I heard it quite frequently wherever I went. But, you know, I recall at that time being- Way too blown away by My Bloody Valentine's Loveless to think that this was something revolutionary. Well, I remember for sure when this came out, like I played in a band um, and we covered a bunch of these songs. I don't think we covered Smells Like Teen Spirit, but we I definitely played like uh, Come As You Are and like uh, like In Bloom and maybe Lithium. I, I feel like I played in bands that played these songs. So 
I kind of got to know them very it's well. It's definitely, at the time, I definitely remember it as a very positive thing because wherever you went, you'd hear sound garden coming out of people's yeah. car windows. You'd hear... It was an improvement over, uh, <laughs> over what it was but then, before. But then within a couple of years... At every traffic light, you hear fucking corn at every car window. Yeah. Puddle of mud. Well, it didn't take Lincoln long. Park. Yeah, I mean. So let's talk about the glut of fucking complete horseshit that was inevitably to have streamed and sluiced its way yeah. down the pike as the result of this record. Well, look, it's not any secret that people that run major labels are, you know, they're not like big music fans. They're like guys that are like, you know, they, they want to make a buck, you know, so... They're, the format of where Nirvana fit in radio, they kind of took over like what was rock radio. So bands like that, bands, you know, all of those bands from that generation, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, um, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, they, they, you know, they, they muscled everything off of rock radio. Mm-hmm. So if you're like a record label guy, you're like, okay, I got to sign a band that I can get onto rock radio. What sounds like this? You know, so it got kind of like uh, watered down it, like in a very quick fashion, um, and the, the the kind of the next wave of bands, it, w- it wasn't too long before you got to like like bands like it, Bush it, or something. I think it embarrassed them. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. Do you think it actually embarrassed them, or that they felt like as as, really but, as like that. Butch Vig said uh, in a 2011 interview that that they had really loved Nevermind the band yeah. uh, when they finished it. Uh, but Kurt that, but li- that Kurt criticized it in the press because you can't really go, hey, I love our record and I'm glad it sold 10 million copies. That's just not cool to do. So he felt like he had to do something more primal. I think that's a little different than he didn't really live long enough to see like like bands like right, Bush or something or like Creed like ride in, try to ride in on that wave. And he didn't really right. see it really go to shit. Um, I, think, I think it's more like a sort of... You know, when you get to be that that huge, you start and the crowds get really big. You start getting a lot of like punters out to the show. You start to get people out to your show who maybe you don't personally identify with. That was his big nightmare. Some people can deal with that. You know, like I think like Dave Grohl is not like he's a very everyman kind of personality. And so the Foo Fighters are this huge band, and he, it's like all are welcome kind of attitude. But that it wasn't really like that with with Nirvana. They really no. kind of wanted their own people. You know, they 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 came came from an insular kind of world where it was like, you know, I, I think attracting kind of the people that bullied Kurt as a kid was kind of troubling to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the whole thing about uh, incesticide is that um, the only reason, I believe it was incesticide, the only reason that uh, he agreed to it is because he, had, he was able to get control over the art. Right. So he put in the liner notes... Uh, yeah, there's a whole kind of kind of kind screed. of pro- proto woke kind of screed exactly about, like exactly. Uh, about you know toxic masculinity and all right, those sorts of right. things. Okay, so this is like some irrefutable work of greatness. So you can't say anything negative about this record. I mean, it was ranked uh, 17 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, it was actually upgraded to number six in 2020, uh, and. Chris Gow, in retrospect, gave it an A+, which is noteworthy because, you know, he's the dean. Let's start with uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. We're going to just go into the music. Yeah. Not, not Forget about what this song did, because it did quite a lot, but musically, how good is this song? 
This one, you know what I got to say, was never really my favorite. Um, it's it, it was not really their choice as a, they didn't really see this as a single when they got out of the uh, when the record was finished and mixed. It does lead off the record, but it um, people responded to it like crazy. So it kind of took off at college radio first, just because DJs liked it and played it a lot. And then when it kind of when they started pitching it to radio. You know, that part of what they do is they'll pitch it to focus groups. So Smells Like Teen Spirit apparently charted like it's still the all-time record with these focus groups. Like really? It, it, like it like leapt off the charts at he the focus groups. He must have hated that concept. So um, people really responded to it. I guess it's just the the sort of like uh, the the melody is um, is so memorable and catchy. It's 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 a little weird to me that this was such a uh, such an iconic generational. I mean, it's the song of the '90s, right? <laughs> you right. Know? Which is a little bit odd to me. Yeah, I, um, it's it's not uh, like a Rolling Stone, but uh, you know, this is uh, it's not my favorite song on the record, but it's it's, an, it's a great song. Yeah, it's a great record when you hear yeah. the way it's produced and arranged and how precise it is. It's really just the same kind of four chords over and over again. Right. Um. It, the, you know the, the, the these guys, by the way, I mean they must be so psyched because they all are publishing on it. Right, right. So I mean, just that alone, they're probably they'd be set for life if they didn't do anything. Oh yeah. Right? So this is one. Of, I think one of how the, much money do you make it's as one a of, co-writer? You make a lot on something like this. Yeah. This has one point two billion plays on Spotify alone. Um, it's one of the most played songs in so the history what would a of radio. Third of that be. Uh, it's it's a lot. It's you know it's 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 really substantial. I mean, I without naming names, I know someone who has publishing on a hit song. What does his name rhyme with? His name does not rhyme with anything. <clears throat> it's it's a six figure. He has basically publishing on one song that was a hit. Is in his the name 90s. Laraji? <laughs> no, <laughs> At, but it's hundreds of thousands a year for um, a song that was not even like a pop hit. It's like a, it's a staple on rock radio. Well, this is uh, uh, this is a great song, uh, and In Bloom is also a great song. Yes, that's that's, that's number two. That's um, about like uh, apparently like, all the jocks and mainstream. Yeah, this song seems against. to be a kind of prophetic, kind of pre- predicting the punters that were going to be at their shows. Exactly. This this song was really about like people who started showing up, like Johnny Come Lately's, who started showing up after Bleach got sort of popular. That's kind of what it was about, like hangers on, right. like, you know, people who weren't there. And, and Azarad says it perfectly, which is that the brilliant irony is that the tune is so catchy that millions of people actually do sing along. <laughs> right. <the way> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this very quiet, loud, all the way on this one. Um, I always like this song. Um, yeah, it's a great song. And, uh, and by the way, I want to say, I mean, is there any song on the record that's not no, there's not. No, the song's this every, record's, every single song is excellent. Yeah, this song this record's really deep. It's um, crazy how good it is. You know, is. Come As You Are is the next come thing. Come as you are is next. Amazing earworm of melody, like in the verse. Also about, worth um, noting that he recorded his guitar solo in two takes, mm-hmm. as well as three takes of vocals, uh, of which the first was used. Right. And a lot of this you'll find in his uh in his story is that he either just does it in one take or he does a bunch and goes with the first take. Right, right. Um, really great, memorable drum fills. Like, you know, Grohl joining the band has such a musical sensibility with his playing that he just makes the songs that much catchier by coming up with these really kind of 
parts that are kind of like little ribbons that are tied on the song. It really knows how to punctuate just the right moments. And yeah. you can kind of air drum every fill on these songs. You know, This song I was really impressed with from the very beginning, more so than I was with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Super aquatic. As a dolphin, when I heard the watery sound effect, it immediately <laughs> piqued my interest. Yeah. Um, so this one also, a bunch of people have speculated that the song's about heroin, which um, does play a key role in our story. Um, this starts to become a real problem for him. It was, um, you know, also, I think, an issue, you know, early on as well, right? Well, Kurt had a lot of, um, you know, uh, risk factors uh, for drug abuse and suicide. There was a lot of both, I think, in his family history. And, um, you know, I... there was a lot of suicide in his family history. There mm-hmm. were, you know, grandparents and like not there, there was, when you read about it, you're like, Oh wow. It's like, that's kind of surprisingly a lot. Um, never really did seem to get the, uh, depression under control. And, um, you know, I, I, I read a thing that Michael Azerod said lately, uh, Michael Azerod was wrote the, uh, the biography of Nirvana, um, come as you are. Um, I have not read it. Have you read that? I know, but I just did read recently a thing he did with with the New Yorker, um, an interview that Michael Azarod did. And he said when he first met Kurt, um, the first time he went and interviewed him, they were Kurt. And, this was after Nevermind had come out, and they were living in a little apartment on Spalding Ave, right across the street from where I used to live. And he said the first time he ever saw Kurt, that he just the 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 thought instantly flashed in his mind like this is not a guy that's destined to live long. Right. Just and first, just for seeing him in person. Um, so, you know, he had that kind of darkness following him around always. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but apparently when they would make these records, he was very focused and very, uh, very, That's very, by pur- all very accounts, purposeful. Not, not just this one, yeah. but on In Utero, apparently, yeah. that's, you know, Albini, who's does not suffer fools gladly. And I'm pretty sure would be open about it if Kurt was a mess. Yeah. So that he was always focused and sober in the studio. Yeah. So the next track is Breed, which is unbelievable. Yeah. My Again, What's that? That's like my low-key favorite song on the record. It's really, really good. I kind of forgot about this one. Again, four takes of the vocal. They only use the first one because uh, apparently he blew his freaking voice out doing it. Yeah, they play this one in like pummeling fashion. They really, what, what a really great heavy. tune, man. The uh, when it goes to the guitar solo bit, it kind of almost reminds me of like uh, like Goo era Sonic Youth or something. Uh-huh, kind of uh-huh. has like it sounds almost like cool thing or something. It's like kind of in that kind of vein. Um, the difference, like I said before, the difference with this and the Chad Channing version really shows you like girls, all his drum parts on this are just the best. Um, I love the next song as well. Lithium. This is another um, huge single. Another one that's like a staple of classic rock radio. And that section, you know, is for, I, I'm a big fan of like intense sections of songs yeah. as well, obviously. Yeah. And capitalizing on knowing it's intense and capitalizing it properly. Yeah. I love you. I'm not going to crack. I'll, I, I'll kill you. I'm not going to crack that whole section. Yeah, is so intense. Yeah, really drop. They really build the drama on this one a lot. Yeah, um, yeah it's great. Another what, great what single. Great, great melody all throughout. Um, yep. So that one holds up. You've heard then, it, you heard it a billion times, but still holds up. It does every single time is just as powerful as the last. Then you got Polly. Um, no, Polly uh, is yeah, right. another amazing one. Um, so the recording actually uh, featured. Uh, Cobain actually played a five-string Stella guitar that he purchased from a pawn shop for 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. He didn't even bother changing the strings and appa- apparently barely stayed in tune. Now, this one survived from the um, the sessions with Chad Channing. Exactly. So this this survived from the Sheep era sessions. Right. 
No, uh, re- not remix, completely though. though. There's I like, think they did some overdubs on it. Right, there's like stuff on it. Yeah, like I think the, the orig- the original tracking. I think was from the da- that date though. Um, so that's a great song. Territorial pissings, uh, notwithstanding the um, the intentionally shitty opening version of Get Together, is right. a great song. It's sort of like he's uh, it's like boomer baiting, right? It's right. Sort of like you right. know. <laughs> But it's a little bit too easy in yeah. comparison to the rest of the record. Right. It feels like the only section, actually, Joe, uh-huh. this time through as a troll, this pulled me out of the experience of listening to the record. It, Just that little intro? or It the, did, right. because what I listened to what felt like a classic rock record. Uh-huh. Then all of a sudden, I was in Generation X. <laughs> then I was back in classic rock <laughs> album territory. Yeah, I kind of don't mind it. Uh, uh, it's it's kind of dumb, but you yeah, it's know, dumb. It's a dumb joke. It's but, a you know. great song though. And drain you is next. So territorial pissings. Before I move on, that uh-huh. really like to me like that shows off their punk cred. Like that's really what mm-hmm. punk should sound like to me. That's that song is like it's 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 just a scream into the wind. You know? It is. It is. Um, that song rips. They play it great. That fucking guy. He makes. He's dead, but he makes so much freaking money. He was a really really great screamer. Yeah. Uh, drain you is next. So. Um, so apparently there's more guitar overdubs on this one than any other songs on the album. There's one clean track, five distorted tracks, two using a Mesa Boogie amp, two using a Fender Bassman amp, and one that they called the Super Grunge track using a pedal on the Fender Bassman. Mm-hmm. Um, what a song. Yeah, this is kind of, you know, these, now we're kind of getting into the sort of album track section of the record, but it's very strong. So. Yeah. This is Another kind of great the, uh, example, by the way, of of Dave, Gro- Dave Grohl's drumming. Yeah, yeah, and I may, again, yeah, really punches all the parts up, and yeah, you, you kind of get a really distinct sense of like what's a verse and what's a chorus in a Nirvana song. Yeah, um, you know, they got the the arrangements down. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, Lounge Act is next. That's uh, that's really good. That's maybe one of the most obscure songs on the it record. Is. Maybe it's the it, most probably obscure. Probably the most. But, I would uh, have to say. In fact, funnily enough, it's the only one I didn't write any notes about. Yeah, it's but it does have that their classic kind of melodic integrity to it, and they play it great. So, I mean, there's still... There's really not a bad song on this record. There's really. not. No, in fact, forget about not a bad song. There's not a single song that's less than great. Yeah. Not a single song, which is crazy. Yeah. Stay Away... Um, manic, furious intensity. The whole monkey see and monkey do. I don't know why. Um, Not too dissimilar to breed. Kind of a cousin yeah. to breed a yep. little bit. Um, Great song. Then my my come from behind favorite. Uh, honestly, from since from the album came out, on a plane has always been. My favorite song. Yeah, on the that one's really great. Um, I love love this song. It's you know it's a song written about writing a song. So lyrically, it's interesting. Melodically. It has the best melody on the whole record, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this one's like, you know, this is 100% music, 0% bullshit on this right. song. This is one of the ones, like, the, the melody is so strong. And, I mean, this is <laughs> this was, this made Poison and Queensryche seem pretty fucking silly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. This is like a buried album track, and they're, you know, it's, they, they're uh, operating at a... They, they have so much good material for this record. It's, a, it's an embarrassment how much crazy good stuff they have. Um, and it caps the whole thing, uh, you know, has an elegance that reaches a pinnacle on something in the way. So this is kind of a a great example of his uh, self mythologizing style. Uh, this, uh, you know, is apparently about his time living under a bridge uh, in Washington. Apparently, that would have been impossible. 
uh, for him to have lived under this particular bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he's, got, is, he's got the self-mythology thing uh, down. He does. <laughs> he's, he's he does. Um, it is absolutely, it's an incredible song. Yeah, it's an all-time classic album closer. Um, really yeah. mood, moody kind of thing that you, that's kind of unexpected and it sort of like leaves you in a leaves you in a kind of questioning sort of note with the record. Right. right. Um, you know, I, I love Not the vibe. Not a happy ending. Yeah, I love the vibe to the recording. It's sort of yeah. like, he, it's his voice is like very intimate and up close in the verses when he's singing mm-hmm. very quietly. And then when it goes to the chorus, it's like it, it's double tracked and it really fans out. And it, it, do, it This definitely does have a Lennon-y sort of a Yeah, thing to it, it gives it a great lift when it goes to the double track. Um, you know, perfectly natural way to end the record. Um, and then there's like a hidden track thing. Endless, nameless. So this is sort of... Uh, you remember hidden, remember hidden tracks? So let me ask you as far as the advent of hidden track. Uh, is this the birth of the hidden track? I don't know. Because this is definitely the popularization of it. I guess. This, yeah, this came is, out right. and all of a sudden, if anyone who was anyone, if you were trying to hook into the grunge movement, you were doing hidden tracks. The one that stands out to me, the one that I, man, that I used to love it, I would play it through the whole way is um, the Flaming Lips hit to death in the future head. Mm-hmm. There was about 30 minutes of pan thunder. <laughs> it would go bam, 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 back and forth. And I would just sit and listen to the whole thing. Yeah. This one is a great song, though. Um, this is kind of more like their uh, kind of Melvin's y kind of way of playing. Yeah. This is kind of more of a throwback sort of thing. Right. Um, pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wouldn't say it's the best song on the album, but. Um, it look, almost doesn't count as a song on the album because right. of the whole hidden track thing. It's not canonical. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this uh, record uh, goes diamond, uh, I'm, I'm told. <laughs> and uh and, sure it did. and does over 30 million worldwide so I, I don't even know how you talk about this record except just to burrow in and do what we did which is just talk about the music yeah you know um, it is one of those cases that we've done some of these on the show where we've made you know covered these legendary records this one fully lives up to the uh it to, does to its and then some so yeah. doing the trawl for this record uh, i'm sorry for this uh for this band it really allowed me and i'd like to thank Discography is a concept from the bottom of my heart. It allowed me to um, to unpack this as an as a fresh emotional component that I could really approach on its own. And I had forgotten how stunningly fresh and amazing it still sounds uh, since it is so beyond overexposed. But enough time has gone by for me to really appreciate it now in a way I don't think I was ever capable of before. I give it. A very hard five. Yep, five stars. Um, September third, nineteen ninety-one. There's a radio sta- a radio session in London. John Peel. They do endless, nameless, and dumb. Uh, that concludes phase two. Phase three. Better to burn out or fade away. Nineteen ninety-two to nineteen ninety-four. Ninety-one or ninety-two. A solo boombox recorded home demo. All apologies. That is what I chose to open up this phase because that demo, uh, for me, that song is a suicide note that just happens to be a song. So what better way to kick off phase three? Now, they were touring. They toured, never mind, some. They toured it a good amount, but they didn't really go bonkers with touring. They kind of got burnt out. Right. So they're kind of back at it, kind of you know, trying to make some recordings fairly shortly thereafter. Right, right. So there's... They didn't there's go tour a, for like only, two years or something. There's only in early 92, they only have uh, one studio session in Seattle, uh, on April April seventh, ninety ninety two, they have "Oh the Guilt," um, 
then curmudgeon, uh, and then return of the rat. But then for six months, there's no, there's no, uh, stu- no studio sessions at all. Uh, October 25th to 26th in 92, um, Rape Me. Uh, there's a studio session with Jack and Dino producing. Then fall or winter of 92, solo boombox recorded home demo of Serve the Servants and Very Ape. So now Kurt is moving into in utero material. Right. They're kind of working out <clears throat> the new material. Right. So w- winter 92 band rehearsal, Scentless Apprentice. There's 10 minutes of that on With the Lights Out. Um, so, uh, January now at this time, also in 92, they're getting kind of pressured to make another record, right? They wanted one for the holiday season of 92. It just was not going to happen. They were, they were nowhere near getting it done. So they put out incesticide then as kind of a holdover, but it shows you that like, you know, there's that much hunger for Nirvana product The the suits must've been like, just like crapping their pants waiting for this next record, which there was, there was some stuff coming before in utero. We'll get to that. This is just sort of the fragments that they were uh, ca- that we have access to um, on with the lights out. So January nineteenth through twenty first in ninety three, there's a studio session <clears throat> in Brazil, and that's kind of an interesting one. It is an interesting one. This is sort of an outlier. Uh, Heart shaped box. I hate myself and want to die. Milk it. Moist vagina. Gallons of ru- rubbing alcohol flow through the strip, and the other improv. So gallons of rubbing alcohol is actually released on non-U.S. versions of In Utero at the very end. Uh, the rest of it is material from that time. So this stuff, they they haven't really coalesced around that scabrous treatment of these songs yet uh, through Albini, but they're kind of you know just toying with the material. They and certainly some of not them, to play it. Yeah, some of them seem kind of intentionally ugly and intentionally uncommercial. Right, right, where there was right. not really a lot of the stuff in the mix at the time when they were making Nevermind. They sort of seemed to be self-consciously like... Pushing um, away. Yeah, so this the song uh, Moist Vagina is always kind of... Did you listen to that one at all? Yeah. So it has the... the, the, the they ended up kind of like... It, it sounds like a song that's a total throwaway that they just made up on the spot, but they actually re-recorded it for, during the In Utero sessions... These songs kind of stayed in the mix um, for songs that were, were going to be considered for In Utero, even the lesser ones, right? Um, like Curmudgeon and, and Moist Vagina. Yeah, they wanted to reprove that they had authentic credentials. So right. uh, there's also a 93 solo boombox recorded home demo of Penny Royalty. Um, and then February 12 through 26, uh, there is a studio session uh, with Albini, where they do Marigold, let's then we'll talk about that and Sappy. So let's talk about Marigold first. That's Dave Grohl's song. So uh, so in February '93, these these dudes go up to um, uh, to Minnesota with Albini to record in utero. Um, we'll now get into was, the background of that, but right. um, but the 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 material I put here in in order is first Marigold and Sappy. Uh, these are sort of outtakes here. Where Marigold is not used on the record, but it's released as the, a B-side to Heart Shaped Box. Um, it's yeah. a great song. That, that's pretty cool. It's Grohl. It's Dave Grohl. Yeah, yeah. Kurt did not play on the track. It's it is, oh, is that it, it is, is that the case? Uh, yeah, I didn't know right. that. It is. Uh, it is Dave and Chris. I still think this should go in the playlist. I actually am yeah, a big sure. fan of this. It's pretty cool. It's low key, kind of like you know. You hate it. <laughs> okay, so Sappy. Sappy is uh, also called Verse, Chorus, Verse. Uh, let's get into that. It so, was also a hidden track on a, yeah. certain, on a certain album. 
That's right. No alternative. So um, this, of course, uh, kicked up more mystique for the band. Um, this is... Uh, this was the first thing from the sessions to see the light of day. As right, a release. right. Um, so no alternative. <clears throat> the album is um, a real... That's like really peak 90s going on right it there. It is, it is. It was, uh, it was a charity record and um, you know had a lot of your favorite 90s. There's a, there's a couple of really good things on it. There's the one, the Smashing Pumpkin song, and that's great, Glynis. That's that's, a, that. that's one of their best songs. Yeah, that's on the No Alternative. I really kind. really love that. Um, so this is uh, this was actually initially supposed to be the twelfth song on In Utero. It got dropped from the the track list. Uh, this is definitely going on the playlist. This is released in October '93 on the No Alternative comp. It is a great song. One of the more nevermindy songs that were done um, during the. In I Utero give it sessions. five stars. I give it five stars too. It's then a, um, a also song. from the same sessions. I hate myself and I want to die. It was originally um, released in November. Uh, sorry, on November twenty third, ninety three, on the Beavis and Butthead Experience, one of the least <laughs> intense ways for a song about suicide to come out. No, um, I recommend <clears throat> the version that has the Beavis and Butthead intro. It's the right, first. It's, right, the, it's right. the first song on the record, and there's on the Beavis and Butthead record that is, right. and there's a lengthy um, intro uh, with Beavis and Butthead. So this was never performed live. It survived by only two known versions, uh, both studio ones. The first is a demo with unfinished lyrics recorded in January 83, uh, sorry, in 93 in Brazil. Uh, that's on With the Lights Out. Uh, the second version, the one that we're talking about right now, recorded by Albini during the sessions on February 15th of 93. Um, so it was originally titled Two Bass Kid, um, and it was represented by a fish symbol on the tape box. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Cobain explained that there were too many quote unquote noise songs on the album. So this got the axe. Uh, it was uh, set to be released as a B-side to Penny Royalty in April 94. But the, sing the singles were called after uh, Cobain died. So this uh, was finally released in April 2014 on Record Store Day. Right, yeah, this is kind of like, um, it, it's one of those big bombastic kind of rockers that uh, permeates side two of In Utero. Right, right. I think it's kind of better than some of the ones that actually made the record. Without a doubt. So I gave this three and a half stars. Um, I would give this five stars. Oh, well. uh, okay. You know, this is, he uh, kind of underplays it. He, he called it, he said it was boring and that the band could write this song in their sleep. I, I think he uh, thought that the public's perception of him as a pissy, complaining, freaked out schizophrenic who wants to kill himself at the time was incorrect and worthy of being poked fun at, mm. said the guy who was just about to kill himself. Um, so you guys are exaggerating. I'm just, I'm just joking around. <laughs> yeah. I don't really want to die. So live forever. In utero. Um, so th these guys are spending two weeks out in the snow in Minnesota in the dead of winter. I've been to Minnesota. Uh, right before it was winter, and it was murderously cold before winter. Yeah. So these guys are going in the the dead of winter. All they're doing is working. It's sort of like a you can't leave the premises. Sort of. It's in this really small town. It's a town of about four thousand people, um, and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's like you go out. It's like the it's like going to a log cabin or something. They lived at the studio uh, for those two weeks. Let's talk about Albini for a second. Um, so ultimately, they chose Albini to record. Um, the record uh, Albini in his inimitably scabrous fashion 
uh, dismisses Nirvana as REM with a fuzz box and an unremarkable version of the Seattle sound. He accepts the job because he feels sorry for them, seeing them as, quote, the same sort of people as all the small fry bands I deal with at the mercy of their record company. So, you know, when I hear Steve Albini talk now, I generally tend to find him pretty likable and to be kind of on point with most of the mm-hmm. things that he says. I he think he's kind of mellowed over the years. I, when I hear him talk now, I find myself like mostly agreeing with him and finding him to be a pretty like genuine person at the time. I think he was genuine then too. Well, I don't know. At the time... I think he had very clear ideals for himself yeah right? i don't know at the time i would describe him as what we now call an edgelord <laughs> he was looking to right, say right. the outrageous thing right to get him attention yeah and to sort of like you know i'm going to express my punk rockness and my even rash like opinions. you look at the you look at the cover of the headache ep by big black yeah it's, it's a head crushed open yeah to the skull ripped he's open. not so much of an edgelord anymore um but like look, check out his values at the time you have to look at the idea that he refused royalties yeah they were they refused to get points on the record he got a hundred thousand dollars straight up right um even though he stood to earn about five hundred thousand dollars and it was clear that that was the case yeah well he would have gotten five hundred thousand plus the original hundred thousand mm-hmm. you know um he thought it was an insult to the artist to do stuff like that. So yeah, he had all these kind of <clears throat> bold stances. He, this is um, you know, he's. I, I read. I didn't really know this little factoid, but like, uh, his whole thing is like recording. You know, using all the, his mic technique. He owns like a bunch of mics, and he like really knows how every mic works and everything. But I, I read that he he would use thirty mics on the drums. Right, record. right, That's right. I read that too. Insane. I read that. It's exactly what I have printed. It's totally, in here. totally nuts. Um, so for most of these sessions, by the way, he was picked and we've discussed this coming at it from another angle, mm-hmm. uh, with PJ Harvey, but here's basically, um, you know, kind of starts with Surfer Rosa and uh, pod by the breeders. And, um, you know, uh, Rit- he actually sent Albini sent Cobain, a copy of rid of me to give him an idea of how it would sound. There's another record from this period that Albini made. There's a couple, but one in particular by Jesus Lizard, the record Down. Right. Sounds right. almost identical. That's the one with Mouth Breather. It sounds almost identical yeah, yeah. Um, sonically to, uh, you know, so it's, you know, it's a lot of room tone. It's a lot of like mics capturing the sound of a room where, you know, right, Nevermind's right. very close mic'd. Um, Nevermind's kind of made in a more conventional sort of fashion. This is kind of like that blown out, like playing in a room. And the strength of it is you really get the sense of their energy playing. It really kind of has mo- a naturalistic mo- kind of sound. And most of the songs, they're playing together as a band. Right. Mo- yeah. Most of them. Yeah. Um, so, so for faster songs like Very Ape and Tourette's, the drums were recorded separately in a kitchen for yeah, the they, reverb. Yeah, they used a more more verby room for, for a couple of those. But otherwise, um, these guys are playing live in the room. Very light on, um, you know, outboard effects and stuff. You know, Albini kind of sees himself as this, like, sound recordist. More also, so for most of these sessions, um, only the band themselves, Albini and Bob Weston, the technician, were present. Um, the band made it clear to Geffen uh, and their ma- and to Gold Mountain, their their management company, that they, there was to be no intrusion. Uh, Albini uh, Albini basically ignored everybody except the band because he said everyone associated with Nirvana were quote the biggest pieces of shit I ever met. <laughs> yeah, so this is really a situation where these guys are like, I think it's probably I think he's probably right on the the, the when they deliver the record. 
the both the management and the label are both like, oh no no, this can't be the record. This is this is where are our hits, you know. Right. Um, now the original there there to me there are three songs on this that seem like obvious singles, um, Heart Shape Box, All Apologies, and Rape Me. Rape Me is obviously problematic as a single um, to get like radio play and things like that because of the title and the subject matter. So that kind of left really two songs that were kind of like pretty obvious singles. I think they were hoping to get a record that had like five hit singles on it. And like, what, I only hear two singles on this? What, you know? Serve the Servants is single Sort of, but... The verses. Yeah, but the not verses. really though. Um, um, you know, not really in that kind of never... It's, 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 that's probably the most other, like most straightforward kind of song like that. Um, yeah, one, th- one interesting thing to take note of is that uh, reportedly Kurt re- recorded all his vocal tracks in six hours. Right. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is not something that you're able to do if you're right. all fucked up on heroin. Now the original, they ended up with a pretty good compromise though, because the, in addition to not hearing a, a large number of singles, the two songs that they single that they thought might be the singles, Albini's mixes sound kind of weird on those. Like if you listen to the mm-hmm. original Albini mix of, um, heart shaped box, it doesn't really have the same kind of three That's di- about Courtney Love's vagina. Right. <laughs> it doesn't really have the kind of three-dimensional kind of sound that the Scott Lit mix has. The vocals don't really seem to pop as much. And then like when the guitar solo kicks in, it's like really super abrasively also, loud. Also, that doesn't pop out. It, it, it doesn't not feel of a piece with yeah, the surroundings. I think stuff. Scott Lit, they, well, they had him remix both. Um, he did a great job. Yeah, he, he did All Apologies and uh, Heart Shape Box. And those songs I think did need remixes. I yeah. think that was a suitable compromise. They're, they're perfect as is. Pretty much everybody got what they wanted the suits got their singles um you know nirvana got to put out their album the way they wanted it to um you know and they it sort of got the desired effect where it sold five million copies but it peeled off a lot of the fans that they didn't want that they kind of got the result they they got their desired result it was overall just a triumph (laughs) everybody got what they wanted yeah, Kurt said when they, you know, as far as the remixing goes, um, that they almost immediately began to have doubts about the record. Kurt said that the first time he played it at home, quote, I knew there was something wrong the whole first week. I wasn't really interested in listening to it at all. And that usually doesn't happen. I got no emotion from it. I was just numb. They didn't really change very much. They only, remi- yeah. they only remixed two songs. I guess they also did, uh, they had it mastered in a way that kind of brought the vocals they, out of They did ask Albini to do it first. He yeah, declined. They, well, they were going to do a whole thing where they wanted him to remix the whole album, and then he said, no, I'm not doing that. And then they were going to bring in maybe Andy Wallace to mix it, and then Albini's like, I'm not going to give you the tapes. And it was like a whole drama going on with that. So this this record was, um, this was a little bit surprising to me uh, in a very specific way that we'll, we'll just go through the record. I'll explain it later. But uh, track one, Serve the Servants, um, what a what a great song. This is actually the only in utero song that had never been recorded as a demo by the full band prior to being uh, laid down for in utero. Yeah, well, Serve the Servant starts off with a great like poke to the eye, the sort of dissonant Teenage chord. Teenage angst has paid off well, well I'm now just, I'm bored and old. The opening chord is just this dissonant, like ugly sounding chord. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. the anti-Hard Day's Night chord. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it's Certainly great, the anti-Nevermind. It's a great little punch in the nose. I always yeah. love that song. Um, it's, it's kind of a different kind of thing than Nevermind right out of the gate. It's kind of announcing it's not going to be the same kind of record. But it's a good bridge because it's, right. you, it's still still catchy. Have, you still have that Beatley melody underneath. Yeah. You can throw on as much scuzz as you want, 
But if you really, if he really wanted to make a clean break with Nevermind, he would have put Scentless Apprentice as track one. Yeah, so that comes out as track two, and that's pretty. That probably bummed out a lot of the normies. That was yes. like that was I'm sure more than any other song in the record. Yeah, I'm sure that was intentionally sequenced there to um, to peel off some fans <laughs> to like bum people out, and. Um, it's uh but it's so great though it's it's so, uh, of the songs that are kind of the noisy songs on this record this one's in a whole other dimension you know this is a, a growl thing uh-huh. did you know that so this is uh the guitar, yeah, gets, the guitar a, riff was written by growl he's a co-write on this right? um, yeah. and uh cobain said uh, that it was such a cliche grunge tad riff mm-hmm. that he, he was reluctant to to even jam on it right. but um just to make growl feel better he wrote the song around it uh, that's why it's a band co-write. Now I should all, we should also mention by the time this they were making in utero, there was a, kind of a lot of like uh, bad feelings about their publishing situation. Kurt went back and kind of renegotiated a lot of the publishing, making sure he was getting the lion's share of the of the songwriting. Um, they were all amenable to that, but at some point, at one point, he wanted to like do it retroactively. You know, they they had agreed to split royalties on Nevermind, and he wanted those rates renegotiated like after the record came out and was a hit. So um, there was a lot of contention about uh, publishing. They, you know, that that's a common theme with a lot of bands that the, you know, the guy that's actually writing the songs wants to take. More he was probably one album away. For, he was probably he probably got the thought of renaming them Kurt Cobain's Nirvana right before he pulled the trigger. <laughs> right. He was like, "This is not going to go." But direction. anyway, Scentless Apprentice" is a giant like middle finger kind of punk rock sort of statement, and um, it's the screaming is so badass. I mean, it, it, you, I've always loved this one. Yeah, it doesn't get more like in the red than this. Heart shaped box comes next. The big single, uh, originally titled "Heart Shaped Coffee." Uh, this was a big hit. It's not my favorite song on the record, but it's definitely a great song. Um, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's a great drop D riff. Um, just the great melody over that riff. I mean, this is really just shows off his songwriting. Um, this is Kurt's writing kind of at his best, I think. I, this is, I think this is one of the highlights of their career. He just weaves such you a love great... This song. I love this song, yeah. yeah, he, yeah. he weaves such a great melody in it. And Rate Me um, is not the big hit. Yeah, so you know, rate me. This is that's this was um, another one that was kind of a big deal at the time. It, it, you know, the the opening riff of that seems like it's kind of a parody of uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit." It's kind of played in the same mm-hmm. kind of rhythm, and "Rate Me" is a song that kind of works on two levels. It's you know, um, um, it's it, you know, it's obviously an anti-rape song. It's a song that's meant to be empowering, um, and then it also seems to have to be a reference to um, the media. Uh, Kind of the, right, this right. media scrutiny that they that Kurt and Courtney that, seem, that seems to be the takeaway topic. Yeah, we haven't spoken much about Courtney. Um, Thank God. But <laughs> but um, obviously, you know, they had but you know they they had they had their you know Kurt and Courtney had their daughter. There was like uh, accusations of them being heroin addicts. I mean, presumably true accusations. I in, in all in all fairness, the the the. The general perception or vibe around Courtney is that she is a poison. Yeah, that she's a Yoko kind of character. Well, no. Like, like more so, like she has that reputation. Yoko, in, in her case, unfairly, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe, you know, Yoko was a distraction for John, which took him away from, you know, Beatle music, which made, which made her evil to people. Right. I think Courtney is potentially, uh, without knowing her, 
she seems like she could be a very vile human being. Well, I, yeah, there's something kind of manipulative. I mean, I don't know. I don't really want to even go into it. Then don't go into it, but let <laughs> I, it stand I don't, I find I find her to be very not interesting as a person. Yeah, she's about. not an incredibly interesting human being. There was a lot of tabloid sort of um, drama the, you know, circulating around their marriage and around the, them having their child. Especially a Vanity Fair article. Right. So this this seems to be... Uh, there's a line in the... Very damning of their yeah. lifestyle to the, to the point where... Uh, you know, I'm surprised that their kid wasn't taken away from them. I think there was court hearings about it and stuff. Yeah, yeah it, went, it, it got pretty serious. There is a line in the bridge of "Rate Me." It says, "Like my favorite inside source." Um, that seems to me to be a reference to the Vanity Fair um, brouhaha. Right. Um, but the song itself, I think, is really powerful. Um, you know, I don't know if a song like this would get made today. It's very overt in its message. I, you know, Nirvana, obviously, very feminist band. Um, and I don't think that was meant to be exploitative at all. I no. think it was meant to be an empowering anti-rape kind of song. It's gotten its share of criticism over the years. Um, you know, this, the scream at the end that when he when he oh, screams, it's, scream, it's one of his great screams. It's, it's, it really it is. really gives me goosebumps every time I hear yeah. that scream. It's it's. Uh, I could tell by the way you just. I'm, grabbed it's giving your me goosebumps arm. now. Thinking yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I you know. And you're literally trying to push the goosebumps back into your body I, you know it's it's so dorky but listen when i listen to this for this trawl and the headphones it, i did actually get goosebumps <laughs> no that's not dorky at all yeah it, it's a i mean this is a powerful song yeah his the scream is just it, it's this, it's such a great payoff a song like rape me okay you go from a guy writing something like that a puddle of mud or Lincoln Park. Oh yeah, um, the, 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 art, the not, artistry is talk all about gone. not getting the fucking message. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Francis Farmer will have her revenge on on Seattle, uh, or otherwise I miss the comfort in being sad. Yeah, always love this song. Uh, what a great song. Um, and also, I want to mention that that fucking awesome guitar screech that they leave. In they leave in the mistake during the yeah. guitar. It's chug. not only a, not only a feedback, but he plays like a wrong chord and yeah, they kind of just leave awesome. it. Awesome. It's um, always been my favorite moment of the whole song. Really incendiary um, playing by everybody on this. Yeah, um, yeah. No, ain't no auto tune or none of that shit going on in this. This is just a rock band in a room playing, and you know, yeah. it's the chemistry of them playing on this is really they're really on fire. It's an amazing song, and then uh, it, Dumb is next. I mean, we're we're really. Uh, hitting him out of the park now. This is kind of another one that maybe could have been on Nevermind. It's kind of a little bit in the poly kind of feel. Um, one of the yeah. kind of more low key moments. Great song, though, great melody. I thought this was. Uh, I thought this was worthy of mentioning. Um, uh, Frances Bean, in 2015, she um, in Rolling Stone. She her own interpretation of the song. She explained that she cries every time she hears that song. It's a stripped down version of Kurt's perception of himself of himself on drugs, off drugs, feeling inadequate to be titled the voice of a generation. Mm -hmm. um, I would have to say uh, on the DL, one of the come from behind best on the record. Yeah, it's a good song. You know, I don't think about this song all the time, but mm -hmm. there's something incredibly sad about it. Um, I love it. It also is the last great song before a very strange section of the record. So, yeah, so there's kind you of basically a have a five-song section where... You have a great song and then two songs to the left and right of that great song that are kind of minor. So this is kind of the fuck you part of the record. These, these songs seem kind of, this is maybe the thing that's the biggest ding on the record to me is right. um, 
is uh, that this was sort of, these are songs are sort of meant intentionally to be hard to listen to. They're meant to sort of intentionally be alienating. Some of them, you know, there's... See, to me, they just seem less interesting. Yeah. That's the problem. Sure. I, th- I think that's the real crime of it, right? <laughs> songs aren't really, aren't really that super interesting. They have, there's some good bits in all of them. There might be a good riff here or there, but there's, there's a distinct like rabbit hole flavor to the back end of In Utero that, um, you know... If maybe for some people it's your it's your cup of tea. To me, it's like not really the best material of their it's not. career. It's their weakest. It's their look of the two records. Uh, if you look at them as quadrants, uh, or you don't have to look at them as quadrants because there's <laughs> album sides. Wow, good going, Dave. Um, what's so, your favorite quadrant of in your life? Wow, that's the fucking geekiest. I like. Piece qua- of I shit. prefer quadrant D. <laughs> So quadrant D is the only weak <laughs> quadrant. All right, man, talk about let's move on, please, immediately. Um, but no, so there's the, there's four songs. Very Ape, Milk It, Radio Friendly, Unit Shifter, Tourette's. Those are split up by Penny Royalty, which is a perfect song. Right. Thinking of those four in my mind, I'm not sure which one is which ever. I, I've known ever, this record for ever. 30 years, and I still don't really know which yep, one is which. Yep, and um, also there's nothing to say about them. Yeah. There's almost nothing to say about them. Let's just talk about Penny Royalty. So... Um, this actually uh, goes back to 1990. Um, so uh, Kurt says, uh, Dave and I were screwing around on a four track and I wrote that song in about 30 seconds. And I sat down for like half an hour and wrote the lyrics and then we recorded it. Interestingly, in 1995, Leonard Cohen, who of course uh, is being uh, begged and wheedled for a, uh, a, an afterworld of his variety during this song. Um, he said to Addicted to Noise, I'm sorry I couldn't have spoken to the young man. I see a lot of people at the Zen Center who have gone through drugs and found a way out that is not just Sunday school. There are always alternatives, and I might have been able to lay something on him, or maybe not. So uh, this was supposed to come out as a single in April 94, uh, but uh, I think probably because of the B-side being I hate myself and want to die, it didn't seem very kosher, so they canceled that. It's a perfect song. Yes, that's a great song. It's thematically kind of, um, you know, the album's called In Utero, and one, there's kind of an overall theme of, like, pregnancy and childbirth on the record. This is a song kind of about abortion, um, and, you know, so there's some other kind of running themes that go through In Utero. I, it does seem like the, the uh, like, you know, there's a song called Radio Friendly Unit Shifter that seems obviously about, like, how they're, the, them being commercialized, and so they're kind of, that's, Penny Realty's thematically, I think, a key track, um, yeah, on the album, it you know it has the like that like Cobain as Lennon kind of <laughs> vocal melody. Yeah, totally. Um, the the mix and the recording sounds incredible. Um, it's maybe the the quietest and loud of the quiet loud songs. <laughs> you know, it's like it yeah, really does yeah. the quiet loud thing mm-hmm. kind of doing extreme. Um, you know, very emotional kind of hook. Um, yeah, great song. It's a great song. Um, and then the end of the record. Uh, you know, it's odd to know that All Apologies was written by Kurt in 1990. Right. But it's almost like he knew he was going to he was gonna off himself because, you know, it feels like a suicide note to me. It always uh, comes off as a suicide yeah, note. Yeah, despite the sunny kind of chords and melody, it's, it does sound like a goodbye. I mean, it he's, does. He's offering you all of his apologies, you know, so yeah. it's, that speaks for itself. So in, uh, in 2005, Grohl uh, recalled that the song was, quote, something that Kurt wrote on a four track in our apartment in Olympia. I remember hearing it and thinking, God, this guy has such a beautiful sense of melody. 
I can't believe he's screaming all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is a great, great song. Yeah, and, it's a great and closer. And I got to say, if if ever uh, he ever struck me as qu- the voice of a generation, this was the song. Yeah, I don't really buy into any of that voice I know, generation I know. crap for any generation or any. I know, voice. but but you know, it's being shoved down everyone's throat that that's what he was. Yeah. I don't think it was the case. I think nor he, do I, I think, think <laughs> nor do I think Dylan was the voice. Of the I think Co- I think Cobain actually liked it. I think he liked the idea that he was supposed yeah. to be the voice of a generation. I'm sure, he was very self obsessed with his own image. He like watched a lot of MTV. He was very conscious about what was in the press and how he was being received. Um, I don't think that makes him any less authentic. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's just how he was. Um, this is, uh, I mean, look, as a whole, this is a, it's an extremely unpleasant listen. It's basically an album-length suicide note. I think we can agree on that. It sounds like the auditory equivalent of ripping tons of scabs off one after the other. Mm-hmm. Plus, toward the end, there's that four-car pileup um, that muddles the undisputed masterpiece tag, as far as I'm concerned. But this is just one of those cases of, I don't even think just to be, you know, unfairly gracious to them, but I think the four car pileup is part of the appeal. I give it five stars. I give it four and a half. Um, I get it. It's great though. I was tempted to do four and a half or four and three quarters, but I decided, you know what, this, this album achieves what they set out to do. Yeah. I think it does fully realize what they, what they had intended to do. Absolutely. Um, in that regard, you know, yeah, they, they, they absolutely nailed what they were trying to do. Um, in red, you know, in retrospect, you know, you kind of, obviously we all wish this was just one in a long string of albums. You could see them making, you know, something even better <laughs> later. Yeah. You know, they, they, they were, uh, this was just, an, it, you know, he was probably good to go for a very on, long time. On some other timeline, this would yeah. have been just another Nirvana album. <coughs> then they do been. this classic live set. That's probably considered to be one of the, one of the great live albums of all time. Uh, MTV unplugged in New York. Uh, it's, um, released on November 1st, 1994. Um, but this is actually a, uh, a performance that was recorded in New York City on November 18th, 93 for MTV Unplugged. In a break with their tradition, Nirvana plays you know, mainly sort of more obscure material and covers of songs by the Vaselines, Bowie, Lead Belly, and the Meat Puppets. The whole concept of, the whole format of um, MTV Unplugged seems kind of like quaint in a way, like the you know, you got the guy, you're playing your acoustic guitars and then the drummer's like playing with hot rods or something. And then there's a guy playing an acoustic hollow body, like quote unquote acoustic bass. Like a, like it's like regular electric bass, but it's like hollow body and it looks like an acoustic guitar. And they had like, they had amps hidden. Yeah. So they're, they're playing through stomp boxes and stuff. So, you know, the, the fuck is a stomp Like box. a pedal, guitar pedals. Um, they're, um, you got to explain it for us fucking nerds. <laughs> The studio they record in, it's, it's like it's, it's like a TV studio sort of atmosphere. Um, there's kind of like kind of polite golf clapping in between. It's a strange format. Um, I don't really, you know, I, I don't miss the uh, the MTV Unplugged days. <laughs> it seems like kind of an artificial yeah. there was a, music There's format. a couple that stand out. Neil Young's was really good. Yeah, sure. Um, so here's the thing that stands out for me. So, you know, the prospect of, you know, a completely acoustic performance were supposedly made Kurt nervous. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, they made their, they had their performance. Cobain suggests that the stage is to be decorated with, st- with stargazer lilies, black candles, and a crystal chandelier. Um, and so he's asked, you mean like a funeral? 
And his reply is exactly like mm-hmm. a funeral. Right. Um, you know, I like the, uh, there's, a, there's a few things of the, on this kind of of interest. The, um, the, the cover of, um, Man this is all in a single take, by the way. Right. Did you know that? Yeah. That I didn't. Yeah. So man who sold the world. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Um, pretty straightforward, uh, respectful reading of that as a cover. Yep. Uh, his voice sounds good on it. And then the meat puppets tunes are kind of fun to hear them play. Those seem a little bit more ragged. Like Let's also really talk know. about Jesus doesn't want me for a right, Sunday. That's cool. That's a great one. Yeah. Uh, as far as the playlist goes, I think we're looking at Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, Man Who Sold the World, and Oh Me. Yeah, the versions of the Nirvana songs. Oh Me is a very yeah. special song. Yeah. So that's a, that's great, a great song. Great song. The actual Nirvana songs that they play, which is about half of the performance, are, you know, they're fine. They're, uh, they're you know, the basic kind of uh, MTV Unplugged style versions of those right. songs. So a couple of them were sort of hits in their own right. The About a Girl and um, All Apologies versions kind of got some MTV play. This record sold 8 million copies. Did it really? It sold 8 million Damn. copies. And um, if uh, if they, it just shows if they'd continued, if they had tried to do, if they continued and like done more commercial stuff, forget it. They would have I'm, I'm not going to rate this because it's a live album. But yeah, me I will say that there's, this is, uh, this is an essential live album and there's some great tunes from this. Yeah. Then in 93 or 94, there is a solo boombox recorded home demo that Kurt threw down of You Know You're Right. Okay, let's talk about You Know You're Right. So uh, in, on January 30th, 1994, this song was recorded. It was eventually released on October 8th of 2002. This will be on the playlist. Don't you worry. This song was written in 93. So for years after uh, Kurt's death in April 94, it was known only from a bootleg live version. Yeah, they played it like once or something. Right, live. in Chicago on, in uh, October of 93, also of that whole performance. Right. Yeah, Hold did it. That. Yeah, Hold did it on MTV unplugged. Right. Which which you told me is a pile of turds. It's pretty bad. It doesn't surprise me. They at make all. it sound like it's not a very good song. Right. This is apparent this is definitely not a bad song. Um, so then on Nirvana's very final session was January thirtieth, nineteen ninety four, um, in Seattle. So the band had booked the studio for three days during a tour break, uh, but the first two days of those three days, Cobain was gone, uh, leaving Novoselic and Grohl to work on their own material. So on the third day, Cobain gets there, uh, immediately goes to the the mixing console and uh, offered supportive advice on all of his bandmates' material. Then they jammed for for about 20 minutes, and began working on the arrangement of You Know You're Right, which was then called Kurt's Tune Number 1. Um, their second guitarist at the time, Pat Smear, uh, lived in L.A., was not present during the session. Um, in a 2002 interview with N- the Nirvana Fan Club website, he said Cobain had sent him a cassette of the recording and told him he could add his part later, but he never had the chance. Um, <clears throat> apparently... They continued. They had re- had planned to continue working at uh, the same studio after their upcoming European tour, but Cobain died just over two months later. Um, no- Novoselic, if you don't mind me, just unspooling the history here. Novoselic took the masters of the recordings home with him after the session, uh, kept them in his basement until '98, uh, when work began on the box set. Um, so. This was a whole bone of contention of which Joe is going to tell you all about. 
Yeah, so they had um, you know, they had this thing in the can, and then it, it took forever to come out because there, I guess there was a dispute between uh, Courtney and on one side and uh, uh, you know Chris and Dave on the other side. Courtney wanted it to come out on like a single disc, like greatest hits, and like was really adamant about that. She saw it on a, as as an album like the Beatles. Uh, the Beatles won, won right? Yeah, and then she yeah. thought it was going to be like this like massive worldwide hit, and the thing was going to sell fifteen million copies. That's exactly the numbers, fifteen million. She's so it didn't really pan out that way. There wasn't that much like thirst for uh, the one this Nirvana is, song. This is a very dark song this is not like you can't see this as like some summer feel-good anthem yeah it's you know it's uh it, 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 it's a great song it's really super it's fucking amazing melodically but this satisfying is, and but, but this is way more in utero than never mind yes right so you can see the kind of next direction they may have headed in um you know still very melodic but dark and heavy and like you know uh, very intense vocal great screaming on it um you know, um, not it, this is not like "Come as You Are" part two or something. No, you know? in um, fact, uh, Dave Grohl has a has one of the best uh, takes on this thing. So, uh, in 2019, he talked with the Guardian and uh, said that I listened to it for the first time in 10 years. Oh God, it's hard to listen to. It was not a pleasant time for the band. Kurt was unwell. Then he was well. Then he was unwell. The last year of the band was tough. Uh, he called the lyrics heartbreaking. Uh, and also said, I used to think it sounded like he was singing the chorus. Now I listen to it, and it, it's like he's wailing. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. definitely a wail. Um, there's the one line before the last chorus where it's maybe his most desperate scream. Like, Things have never been so well, that, that whole line. Mm -hmm. It's maybe his most desperate cry for help of the, yeah. uh, ever on, on one of his recordings. So, I mean, you know, you can't, you, you just really imagine what could have been. Um, you know, he's still so good. Still right. You know, he didn't really lose. This is an the, incredible song. He didn't really I lose mean, the creative spark at all. This so. is a deep five stars. Yeah. It's going to be on our playlist. February 5th, 1994, band rehearsal in Portugal. Jesus doesn't want me for a sunbeam. Uh, now we're getting really down to the wire. Uh, 1994, um, this is apparently the last song Kurt ever wrote. There's a solo boombox recorded home demo uh, in Seattle from his bed. Um, he's laying in bed recording this. This will be on the playlist. Do not worry. Do not fret. Do Re Mi is the name of the song. You can tell if it had been actually recorded in a studio, it would have been a fucking classic. As it is, as a demo, it's kind of like, you know, if you're very familiar with Nick Drake's catalog, it kind of feels like Black Eyed Dog or, you know, one of the last songs mm -hmm. or Pete Ham's Ringside or, you know, one of these stunning, like, you know, late in the day, um, you know, musical throwdowns. La last gasp. Yeah, last, last gasp. gasp. Yeah. Um, this, um, it has a real earworm melody to it. It's not yeah. really like a bummer of a song. It's, no. It's, it's kind of uplifting kind of song, actually, it's, the way the melody goes. You, you, could, you could sort of see it being like a hit almost, you know. It's originally called Do, Ray, and Me, mm -hmm. and then Me and My IV. Um, apparently is uh, one of the last known Cobain compositions, maybe the last... Uh, Courtney starts talking about the song in interviews, um, naming it as one of his three completed, finished, unrecorded songs, along with Opinion and Talk to Me. Uh, with, um, in 1994, with Rolling Stone magazine, she told David Frick, the third one, I can't sing, it's too fucking good. Every part of it is really catchy. He was calling it Do Ray and Me. I thought it was a little corny. It was the last thing he wrote on our bed. So... 
Very quickly, let's touch on this stuff because I don't want uh, to trawl through all this stuff in forensic detail because mm-hmm. it's just too sad. But right. on March 3rd, 1994, Cobain was hospitalized in Rome after taking an overdose of painkillers. Intentional overdose. It, yeah. Right. So Courtney later said the overdose had been a suicide attempt. She said he took 50 pills. He probably forgot how many he took, but there was a definite suicidal urge to be gobbling and gobbling and gobbling. Um, later that month, March 31st, 1994, Cobain left the rehab center. He checked into the day before uh, Exodus Recovery Center by scaling a six-foot wall. Uh, on April 8th, uh, Cobain's body was discovered in the greenhouse above the garage at his house. The Seattle police report states that the shotgun was inverted on Cobain's chest with his left hand wrapped around the barrel. Um, a suicide note was nearby with a pen stabbed through it. Uh, some half-hearted ruminations on better to burn out than fade away and um, see you later. Apparently MTV playing on the television. Oh, really? Yeah. I, that I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, look, I remember, you know, it's the closest thing our generation had to the JFK thing. It was just really sad. I mean, the, like, you know, like I said uh, toward the beginning, the whole thing, m- above all else, forget authenticity, forget the wrong people in your audience, or what a waste. Yeah, sure. What a total fucking waste. Yeah. This guy could have been around for his daughter. This guy, uh, you know, if it was that bad, just get plastic surgery and disappear. Well, he had a lot of the risk factors. I mentioned this earlier for right, suicide. Right. A, lot of, a lot of suicide in his family, and substance right. abuse problems, divorce, that, all these, a lot of things that like really raise your risk um, for suicide. Um, then the posthumous live album comes out, recorded between 89 and 94. This is no MTV Unplugged. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the muddy banks of the Wishka is... Uh, as good as it is, is more of a cash grab. Now, there's a bunch of uh, live stuff uh, that's available if you want to stream. This That was an official release at the time, but uh, one of note is their show at Reading in 92, which is kind of a uh, historic event. Right, right. Um, so is that like the doctor outfit and wheelchair show or something? Uh, maybe. I just know it's... Or a le- there are many shows like that. It's a legendary performance. It's kind of... Um, they was, there was a lot of turmoil going on with them. There was, it was, there was rumors that they weren't going to play up until the very moment they played, and then it's like an all-time mm-hmm. classic rock concert. So you can stream that one, too. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's, you know, lo- there's lots of um, <clears throat> actually quite good live footage of them. Yeah, they were, by all accounts, a great lab band. Never had the pleasure of seeing them, unfortunately. Yeah, I think they were kind of Did good. They were, I've never seen them in person, no. no. they were. I think they were great at times, then not so great at other times. But um, there's a it lot of... It was the best of times. It was the blurst of <laughs> right. times. There's a lot of footage out there if you want to rabbit hole it. So let's uh, go into a little postscript here. So there's not... We all know what happened with the Foo Fighters. Uh, we all don't know what happened from... The moment Kurt died until the present moment with Kurt, uh, with Chris Novoselic, um, we kind of know, we know enough. Uh, in 2012, uh, Grohl, Novoselic, and Pat Smear joined Paul McCartney at 12-12-12, the concert for Sandy Relief. Um, <clears throat> so this features a premiere of a new song written for by, the, uh, by all these guys, Cut Me Some Slack. Um, so there was a studio recording that was uh, released on the soundtrack, I don't even think it warrants being included on the uh, Nirvana playlist. I'd say no. Okay, moving forward here. So on July 19th, 
2013, the group plays with McCartney again during the encore of his uh, uh, Out There concert in Seattle. This is the first time Nirvana members had performed together in their, uh, in their hometown in over 15 years in Seattle. So in 2014, uh, Cobain, Novoselic, and Grohl are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At the induction ceremony, which is pretty cool, um, the uh, Novoselic, Grohl, and Pat Smear performs a four-song set with guest vocalists, uh, a different one for each tune. So you had Joan Jett, Kim Gordon, St. Vincent, and Lord, uh, which is a great thing for Kurt because Kurt would have been, I think, only okay with female vocalists. I think he would have enjoyed it. He would have loved that. Um, all right, let's talk about the overview and shape of the arc. I wrote a little poem. It's the only time I've ever written a poem. Okay, <laughs> Should have stayed sludgy, maybe been low-key like Budgie. Because I ain't think too muchy of Kurt Deep and the Mulchy. My top three albums for uh, Nirvana, uh, they only had three records. If it's anything other than what I'm about to read, you're just a fucking moron. Number three is Bleach. Number two is In Utero. Number one is Nevermind. Their worst album is Bleach. Same. Okay. Same. Well. I'm not going to say it again. Just same. Just what he same. Said. What, just what same. Dave said. Yep. So, look. It's a great playlist. The link to it is in the show notes, also on discography.com. Um, you know, please follow us. Uh, subscribe to the show. That's what we need your help with. Subscribing to the show. It's free for you. We do all the work. All you got to do is subscribe. Send out great episodes to all your friends and family. Um, yeah, we do this at We're Here Every Week. And, um, you know, this, we've got a lot, a lot of cool shit coming up, a lot of great guests, a lot of, like, some extra bonus stuff happening. So... You're not going to believe all the cool stuff that we're going to shower you on in and through. We're going to shower uh, you on cool Yeah, stuff. we're going to shower you on a bed of we're stuff. We're making a bunch of stuff. There's a lot of stuff being made <laughs> and is going to be distributed uh, properly to we're you. We're not going to stop. We're not. There's no stopping us. Seriously, in all seriousness, we have been working so hard on this. Uh, we are totally demented, and we usually snap at each other and apologize directly <laughs> afterwards as a direct result of how we're basically killing ourselves trying to disseminate and dissect the history of rock and roll and pop music for you guys. All right, so, um, you know, come and hit, see us in all the places and all the social medias. You know, do, follow Sub the Twitter. Subscribe. Uh, you know, rate us five stars. Do all the things you got to do, and we'll see you next time on Discography. Discography.